0: Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the many podcasts and sites on the Now Playing Network. Here on each episode of the Director's Club, we take a look at the films of a single director. We look at their critical hits, breakout films, and hidden gems that can be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what sort of themes and connections can come up when you take a look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey, a m- mostly interstellar journey and genre journey done by screenwriter, filmmaker, and Riddick chronicler, David Tuhi. Uh Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we have a very special guest that can uh, help us go and explore Tuhi's work, because I consider him... Not just a, mo- a friend for multiple decades, but a massive film expert on underappreciated and genre gems of which I find several 2 films may qualify. He writes a column for The Daily Grindhouse and he hosts a very fun VHS film series in Chicago at this wonderful place called The Comfort Station called Released and Abandoned. It's my uh, great pleasure to introduce Paul Freitag. Howdy, Paul. Uh, Glad you could be on.
1: (laughs) Hey, Al. Thank you uh, so much for having me here.
0: Yeah, if you could just describe a little bit about, like, the Comfort series, about what you want to present to people.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm really honored to have the chance to present uh, present a few sh- uh, films at the Comfort station. Basically, Released and Abandoned is a series of films that are uh, on VHS, presented on VHS, and they are kind of unseen hidden treasures of the home video era. So we've got some great little, uh, little movies coming up that have not seen any kind of digital release. They're not on streaming. They're not on DVD. Um, one of the titles that we're going to be showing has actually never even had a video release. It was Shot in 1991 and got some festival play and then disappeared off the face of the earth. But I contacted the filmmaker and we're going to be showing that. It's called The Upstairs Neighbor. It's actually from the director of uh, SLC Punk, if you've ever seen that. And uh, we're really looking forward to that, along with several other films that just haven't really gotten the, the, the audience that they've they've deserved. And now, you know, 20, 30 years later, we're hopefully uh, giving that to them a little bit.
0: That's a- amazingly cool to have cinematic uh, excavations like that, because there is a whole world of film that has somehow failed to make the jump even to DVD or Blu-ray, and Streaming, for all the conveniences, can get so limiting on the kinds of uh, films that are, that are playing there. And this is, leads to another thing that you do that is I find really cool is a site that helps people find interesting films on streaming uh, media. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's called uh, Watch This Thing. And if you go to WatchThisThing.com uh, or WatchThisThing.net, either way works. It is a daily updated site for tracking at least a dozen different streaming services to locate the the latest in psychotronic and oddball and genre and art house titles. Uh, all across the uh, the streaming service continuum. So because new stuff shows up and disappears on streaming constantly, it's really tough to keep track. And there's so many hidden gems, especially on Amazon Prime, because there are just insane things lurking, uh, lurking just beneath the surface. Uh, and because it's Kind of difficult to promote these things. It's uh, been kind of my my mission to to point them out to uh, to more adventurous viewers.
2: Now, Paul, you used the term psychotronic, which is a term I only heard recently. But can you describe what that actually
1: means? Sure. I mean, as best as anybody can, I guess. Psychotronic was a term that uh, it, it does have an actual scientific definition, but. As far as cinema goes, it was coined by Michael Weldon in his Psychotronic magazine, and it's kind of a catch-all term for any kind of genre exploitation, oddball, anything that's kind of out of the cultural mainstream. In whatever may that that way that be, I mean, Star Wars is a psychotronic film because it's it's got spaceships like blasting the hell out of each other and alien races and everything. So psychotronic is basically genre film and then some you're, you're kind of in a safe zone if you ever see like a ninja or an alien or some time travel or a carotene in any form you're, you're, you're going get, to uh, get a psychotronic film so
0: <laughs> makes me now wonder if those appearances by uh, Mr. Carradine in the Florida film uh, podcast were counting out
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd say they count Serpent's Egg certainly does so
0: <laughs> right right and uh, I I argue his uh, cameo in Cheyenne Autumn is <laughs> certainly a psychotropic <laughs> moment, <laughs> or, a,
2: or a psycho moment, <laughs>
1: for that matter. Yes.
2: <laughs> so you would say that the the David Tui films that we're going to be discussing today would would qualify in that category.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah.
0: I and I think it's mostly works for psychotronic, but he does a really interesting. Approach that gets near to making mainstream filmmaking, and in other films, he sort of manages to take something where I, I feel it can it can break on through, maybe break on through to get into the popular consciousness in an interesting way. But we're gonna go we're gonna go talk about that. <laughs> when a certain fast, furious person makes his, or makes his <laughs> arrival. <laughs> but we'll start with looking at uh, Tuhi on his debut, Timescape, in 1992. This is also known as Grand Tour, Disaster in Time, and stars Jeff Daniels as an innkeeper who, along with his young daughter, is returning to his hometown. Before the inn can even open, a mysterious bustle of tourists arrive for an equally mysterious purpose as the question arises, not where they're from, but when. Well, this movie made me
2: realize that I love time travel movies so much that I even like them when they're not all that well made because there's a lot of really cool time travel ideas and paradoxes in this one, but it also kind of looks like it was a TV movie. And so we're dealing with a really low budget. And in fact, in this country, it ended up being released on uh, video and aired on TV without
0: an actual theatrical release. This movie definitely comes across that he had a budget that may have come up to the five digits, and he did a real nice favor for Jeff Daniels, and Jeff Daniels is returning the favor. A lot of this look could come from, like, if if an episode of New Heart had a sci-fi <laughs> component to it.
1: Well, I, I, I see that. I'm also, like, kind of a big fan of TV movies. Um, I've written, written a bunch about them. And especially at that particular time, this was made for Showtime. And there were a number of other time travel movies around the same time. There's, mm. like, Jack Shoulders 1201. Um, there was Running Against Time, which was on the USA Network, and that was another time travel that was a Save uh, Save Kennedy kind of thing mm. with Robert Hayes. So there was kind of this weird, like, all of a sudden, there was all these made-for-TV time travel movies, which is kind of an odd little subgenre. Huh. Um, and Grand Tour or Timescape, however it's known, is, I'd say, with 1201, probably the the best of those Um, because it does have like some really interesting concepts at play. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I had fun with it despite it's kind of limited budget. So um, we don't really get like the big sci-fi spectacle of a lot of time travel movies because we never really get out of the present, which I think you can do as long as you're, you're aware of your limitations as far as, as time travel goes. Well,
0: sure. I, Find that time travel movies need their whatever visual effect it is to depict time travel. I find it almost completely. No, I find it completely irrelevant. In fact, there's a movie, a short movie called *Logitech*, where hmm. the act of time travel, if in fact that's what's happening in the movie. Is not even shown at all. It's just he, a person is here, and now he's now he's somewhere else. There is no special effects involved in, in in that.
2: And there are two other movies I'd cite as examples of the same thing. One of which is the great Spanish time travel movie, Time Crimes, and also the very low budget Primer. Mm. Both of which go into incredible detail on this science fiction element of time travel without the benefit of special effects.
0: Yeah, I think I respond really... I really enjoy time travel movies myself. I think there's something about when you're watching a film that makes time travel just kind of fit. I'm going to give a kind of a weird example in when there's a a movie house in Chicago called The Bruin View, which is sort of an Alamo Draft House of Chicago. And I was really happy to go there with a bunch of friends to see a weird dub bill of The Empire Strikes Back, The Empire Strikes Back, (laughs) and Midnight Show was Blade Runner's director's cut. Obviously, the early showing was for people who could see the early showing, and the middle showing was for people who could attend later, but I ended up seeing them both. And so there were these, there's this really fun moment where I felt unstuck in time to uh, quote the Monica movie where I'm like thinking, wait, um, am I remembering a scene from 20 minutes ago? or Remember a scene from two hours and 20 minutes ago. <laughs> and I think something about film, like the way film plays on memory, it's, it's something magical that film can do really quite well. Notably in, recently in a film called The Arrival, not Tuhi's <laughs> Arrival, But it works on that concept as well. And time travel is also a cool way of looking about how when people look back on their own lives and you have a certain... At at certain points you wish you could do things differently. And a lot of really fine time travel movies can just explore the possibilities that you can do things differently and what would you really do differently. And that's something which I think The Grand Tour does quite nicely. Especially
2: since I think this is the case where Tui has found his perfect leading man for this kind of material. Jeff Daniels is great as just a normal everyman. He brings some of the same qualities we talked about when we talked about something wild as just this grounded center in a world where things are going completely crazy all around him. And he does that here. So when the time travel stuff really gets going, he is this solid reactor that keeps everything believable and grounded.
0: He does such a wonderful Mm. modulated job because he himself is so amazed by what's happening to him, and yet he has important things that he needs to do, and he has to try and negotiate this mental minefield of these just of these crazy concepts
1: yeah it's always kind of a tricky path to play as a performer not just with time travel with anything where you're dealing with a normal person on our conceptual real earth that's dealing with these kind of inconceivable concepts where you have to be have a real reaction to this and yet still be able to Kind of react to that in a way that forwards the plot without completely dismissing everything. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Jeff Daniels I think does a really fantastic job of that.
2: And there's a solid uh, father daughter relationship mm-hmm. with the his young daughter played by Ariana Richards, which most people remember as the little girl from Jurassic Park. Yeah, the from, Unix,
0: Yes, yeah, <laughs> and the <laughs> Unix expert from Jurassic right. Park. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus.
2: That relationship brings stakes to the ball game.
0: Yeah, that's so true. That was one of my favorite surprises when I saw this movie was I was just expecting it was going to be this exploration as to what is, are these mysterious people and look into more as to what their mission is or what their purpose is and only to get to a level where I started really feeling for the relationship between him and his daughter and the family dynamics between, the, between them and the, the grandfather. Right,
2: who's yeah, played a nasty piece of work played by George Murdoch.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's a moment about, uh, uh, two-thirds of the way through, which just became just fairly devastating in both, like, kind of an emotional and literal terms. This is something that I was really impressed by as well, is that it's very clear he had a limited budget, and he... and there's a lot of things happen at the end because it's one of the sets that he was able to have or or make use of. But when some crazy stuff does go down, I think he does a real fair example of, like, an example of devastation is depicted really, really well with just a a lot of smoke and uh, debris put in just the right locations to evoke a part of the town that gets destroyed.
2: And then there's the central mystery of most of the film before we even get to the time travel stuff, which are these strange tourists who uh, have invaded the hotel and act in all manner of bizarre ways. And again, you don't need a budget to make these strange people uh, intriguing, just good character actor performances and a script that knows how to do a slow reveal.
0: Mm. Yeah, that script is so nice at being able to, which is written by Tui, by the way, it is so good at slowly giving people information to draw you in. Mm. You're just given increasing amounts of weird behavior, and then increasingly emotional moments as Daniels is um, trying to deal with his daughter and the grandfather character. And then there's points where the movie settles on w- being one kind of film, and then it advances. Mm. This devastation ath- attack I talked about earlier, he saved all of his money to show that effect. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, that was a really great way of, of doing that, because while you're now stuck thinking, you're looking at this um, New Heart episode, and then you go, whoa, where did that come from? It got a nice impact on, on what was not definitely not a lot of money. Yeah, I might
2: compare this movie to a really good episode of Doctor Who, but not, mm-hmm. not the fancy modern ones. Oh, the uh, the yeah. ones from the 80s where they made them for 100 bucks each, Yeah, <laughs> but still they were full of ideas.
0: Mm. Yes, yeah. yes.
1: It has such, so, so many interesting ideas in it. I'm reluctant to talk too much about them just because they do serve as spoilers a little bit. And yes. But it's, it's also one of those movies that's kind of hard to... It's relatively hard to see. Like, I don't think it's even available on any kind of streaming platform. It's It was released on DVD years ago. It's kind of hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Conceptually, as far as the time travel goes, it actually delves into interesting things. That I'm like, I wanted, I, I want to know more about this world, um, and that kind of became a common theme to me in a l- number of Tui's films. In that, it shows you this really small piece of a larger world, and you're really captivated by that small piece. I I think it gives you just enough information to let you really have an a vague interest of what's going on without over-explaining everything and delving into just these tiny little bits that aren't really necessary to kind of sate your curiosity.
0: Mm -hmm. It leaves you wanting more. Mm -hmm. There's no case of needing to explain what the Kessel Run or what a Parsec is, for example, (laughs) in in this movie. You're so right on that gives you some idea of how the tourists behave there's some explanation for why why they do what they do but the mechanics mm-hmm. of how this happens is hinted on but not dealt in some sort of intricate detail because that's not necessary and i think the film has a really good emotional component and what i really enjoy about it is that once it takes the formula it goes and and plays with it it tilts it this way and that when you think you have the movie pegged, it, it turns in on you. And there is a moment three-quarters of the way through where someone makes a phone call <laughs> that I just went full Keanu Reeves, whoa, <laughs> at just what happened with that. And how that's explored is really cool, too. Mm-hmm.
2: And maybe not just Keanu Reeves' woe, but Michael J. Fox' woe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so true. True. So, so true. Um, I want to delve in that a little bit, but it is a major spoiler. The film right now, for the moment, is available here and there on YouTube, so that's a, a chance to see it. And I personally would recommend that people take a look if they're willing to forego like, the, the production values on this. It The story... And what he does with the story is a real goes in really interesting ways. So mm-hmm. I would recommend it before we talk into the detail on it. And what do you guys think?
1: Yeah, I mean I I'd say if you if you're a fan of time travel movies, it is a lot of fun. I think as long as you go in there with that kind of expectation of, you know, this was a made for television movie in the early nineties, so you kind of have that understanding as to what that is as far as format goes, you're going to to have a good time.
2: Good script. Good idea, good lead actors. Definitely give it a shot.
0: Cool, cool. And one of the things that made it so remarkable, which are right now with spoilers here from here on out on, is that when he makes a call, uh, lost highway like he calls <laughs> to himself <laughs> to him because he's because he has managed to travel back in time and this was not revealed until this phone call that he's his past self, slash present self, or however these guys work, is still there. And eventually, he goes and teams up with himself, <laughs> which includes some great moments where they're in a trapped location and in a great, in a great line when the present one is shocked to see, <laughs> to see the future one. And then, does well, this happening? And the future one says, Look, by the time you figure <laughs> out whether this makes sense or not, we'll both be killed. Twice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and this, this movie, this scene you're talking about captures the spirit of probably the movie that got me into time travel movies, hmm. which is Back to the Future Part 2.
0: Oh, Now, now okay. Part
2: 1 might be the, the better film and the, and the more acclaimed film, but Part 2 is the one that has the most fun with time travel paradoxes. Mm-hmm. And so... That spirit that you're talking about of uh, what happens when you meet yourself and uh, what are the the ramifications for that and how do we you know just make that entertaining as hell is transferred from uh, the Zemeckis movies to this one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it plays on those so nicely, and it, it then connects in a wonderful way a little later to the and the to the emotional component as their need to get somewhere. To which they have a fun argument about, you drive. No, you drive. <laughs> but if they use the same person. <laughs> but it turns out that in Jeff Daniels' character's past, he had, had, he had ran away from the town because of a horrible accident, or at least he was perceived as running away. And it's sort of ambiguous in the story as to whether he really was abandoning the situation. And he gets the chance to argue What's the right thing to do with himself? It's an actual internal conflict depicted as externally as possible. It just And it's just a wonderful, wonderful detail. And this idea of just reckoning with the past, which a lot of time travel movies do, is, I think, is handled really beautifully. With, and that sense, Paul, that you were talking about, about giving people a hint of, oh my gosh, what is the possibilities? Mm. I think the ending scene is a really charming version of it. And it ties in with a, a classical music piece called Fur Elise, which Jeff Daniels knows about because his wife, who had passed on, was a piano player. And she had played this for him and their daughter constantly so you hear that at the end and that was a lovely scene but what really straight up got me was that he has to kind of draw people away from the town the part of town that might be hit by this impending disaster and so he and himself are at this church which is an interesting tie to the clock tower i guess and, and at least it comes to mind for back to the future and they're hitting these bells that have not worked for decades And they're hitting the bells in exactly the right tones for the song for release. And I love that part because it's not really, it's not explained. They're not deliberately doing that. It's just something natural that just connects with the past. And it's like how emotion uh, the feeling that an emotional connection can transcend through time. That was kind of the subject of the Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour movie, Somewhere in Time. Mm -hmm. The feeling that that movie trafficked in, that was right there. It was just, I felt it was captured. In that moment,
2: and it's a subtle touch, and I have to be honest, I didn't even notice that. So I'm glad you pointed that yeah, out. Yeah, I, I didn't either. So good call on that.
0: It's oh, it's and it's wonderful because that ties in with the emotional part as well. That's what brings the daughter to running to go, and because she's hearing this out and in, out in, and the fact that even that's as a church is an interesting detail on that as well. There's so many fun undercurrents on just this on this moment and it's several moments out throughout the film that hinted these interesting ways and Brad I completely agree with you that one of the main reasons the film works aside from its story is the absolute grounded performance by Jeff Daniels he makes both the the crazier wilder events and the um, production value kind of things that maybe people would let slide and makes you want to go and follow them mm-hmm
2: Well, we'll see if the lead in Tui's next movie uh, does the same thing. In 1996's The Arrival, Charlie Sheen is a SETI astronomer seeking evidence of extraterrestrial life. When a radio signal indicates he's found it, he's surprised to find himself fired and his work destroyed. Soon his colleagues start ending up dead, and the answer Sheen has been searching for... Might find him first.
0: This is a film which shows two really fascinating casting choices. I think maybe one of Tui's greatest achievements as a director is to have Charlie Sheen play a scientist, and you gotta believe it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really, really amazing, especially in light of his um, uh, new career of being a crazy person. <laughs> I myself did not believe it.
2: I thought Charlie Sheen's method of appearing to be a brilliant scientist was to act with glasses <laughs>
0: and a goatee. <laughs> so you're so, you're making the Clark Kent defense. Yeah, so, so, Clark so, Kent so
2: beyond stage. these kind of visual cues, he just seemed like regular dumbass Charlie, Charlie Sheen to me, which kind of undercut my appreciation of the film and and it it, it did the exact opposite of what Jeff Daniels did for Timescape. It took what could have been a movie that follows through on its interesting concepts, but instead you have this really, I think, lame performance constantly undercutting any kind of tension or, or reality to any of it. But that was
1: that was a that was a good goatee. And keep in mind, this is the mid '90s. There weren't a lot of fa- there wasn't a lot of facial hair on leading actors going around. So that was a bold move to ha- to cast a leading man with facial hair. So I, I'm going to give Charlie Sheen a lot of props for for pulling that out and adding the glasses.
0: Oh man, okay. But apart from once you get past the facial hair part, how did you think of his? Uh, um, the the convincing or non-convincing nature of what he was doing.
1: I, I can't say I was either convinced nor non-convinced. It was just Charlie Sheen's character is kind of a means to an end in order to get the plot moving. And he's not necessarily a presence uh, in the film. I realize he's like the lead of the film and he's like constantly getting things. And but... Outside of his like reaction to like the the bathtub scene, um, which I really loved, yeah. I don't really recall any specific moments of Charlie Sheen like acting other than being kind of bug-eyed. Uh-huh. Um, he didn't distract, but at the same time, he didn't really do anything in service of the film for me. <laughs>
0: okay, I was more convinced by his character. I do agree with you guys that. Part of the thing that he needs to deliver in the story is the classic Keanu Reeves whoa moment at all when things get really, really crazy. And I was thinking about what sort of other actor would do that. Obviously, it would be Keanu himself did that in the Andrew Davis film Chain Reaction. And I also sort of mentally said, well, how, what would have happened if Ashton Kuchter was doing something like that? And I found that Charlie Sheen was would be way more convincing than either of those two guys in the scientific part. And I do agree that with you, Brad, that if you don't buy him as a scientist who is interested in these concepts of extraterrestrial life, then the movie's not going to work for you. I was totally bought in. Part of it is that for me that's a subject that I find incredibly fascinating and I have a a rooting interest in it. So I kind of found that like Charlie Sheen was able to convince me on that score. And I was was drawn in on him and seeing what would happen for him. And so when he does get bug-eyed Later, I, I was there with him. <laughs>
2: yeah, you, you know, if I loved alien uh, invasion movies the same way I love time travel movies, I, I'd i be cutting this a lot more slack just because, you know, that would be my jam.
0: And I do but, like that. I right, do like right. alien
2: invasion <laughs> yeah. films quite a bit. But I was actually thinking, because I did see this not too long after uh, Timescape, that, you, you know, who just would have been perfect would have been Jeff Daniels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could have he could have sold this the way it needed to be sold. Definitely. Now, there's some, some other... Interesting performances. I think the one that's best is, is Ron Silver, who is uh, the, hiss- <laughs> the hissable villain of the piece and, yes. and delivers on all those levels of being the dude you just love to hate. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> yes. That totally goes to Paul's point about facial hair innovation <laughs> because there is nothing scarier in the alien sights than the sight of Ron Silver without a beard. Ron (laughs) Silver and I think every other role has not appeared without that classic beard that made him look like a really good actor version of the um, obnoxious cokehead character from Nakatomi Plaza in Die Hard. (laughs) And Ron Silver has had a, a whole range of roles, but that beard has always been present, except in this one. And then when you see him without a beard you understand why because you uh, oh my god <laughs> and then later you see uh someone who may or may not be him with a uh, super mario brothers mustache and mm. it's actually even worse
2: <laughs> and then we have Lindsay Krauss as the other scientist mm. who she, or most people i think would know her from house of games and mm. she was uh Married to David Mamet at the time, and which and does often explain
0: why she was in House yes, of
2: Games. Often gets to deliver this great Mamet dialogue. Mm-hmm. She does not have that here, so she kind of just stares blankly ahead and delivers
1: her lines, which Aww. is which is such a shame because I I like the idea of her character. Like I I really love she's. Kind of this older woman that, and, and I like the relationship between her and, and Charlie Sheen's character. I'm like, this would have had, should have so much more potential mm-hmm. as being a really interesting and unique subplot because she is kind of, a, uh, it is kind of an older woman, younger man yes. relationship. And she's coming from a position of power and it's, it's, but I, it doesn't really deliver. And it doesn't deliver because of the, Script, but just the performances. There's not really a connection between the two, and it just doesn't quite jibe.
0: I see what you're saying. It doesn't give the story doesn't really give the room to breathe for those for those hmm. two characters. Though there, it does lead to a really interesting scene where she invites Charlie Sheen into her room, and Sheen's reply is, "Wait, are you, wait are you propositioning me? Maybe, well, maybe there's something to be said for monogamy, and and." She has a great reply. That's a great line. Something along the lines of, wow, where is all this guilt coming from? Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It's also got one of the best suspense moments of the film, which has nothing to do with the aliens. (laughs) But the the aliens, to, to the film's credit, they actually do a slow reveal of it and and deal with a lot of cover-up plots beforehand so as she's having this conversation uh somebody has put deadly scorpions in her room so she's uh got one hand on the light switch yes. and you see a scorpion slowly approaching
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. that is a really wonderfully drawn-out sequence of suspense Mm -hmm. when when she's uh, uh, washing her face and when she's getting herself into bed that is the the ability of the pure direction to just put in a lot of tension to it Mm. very very interesting to see how that's all depicted as is that scene that uh, you Paul brought up earlier with the bathtub that bathtub thing as he's making a tense phone call to his girlfriend you just get these slow shots of just water dripping. And you don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as he's more and more agitated, then you see that somehow the background behind him is sort of out of focus. Just gets a little darker, a little darker. And then as the music's sort of swelling, as he's looking down on the bathroom, he just sees all the water coalescing. And he just reacts just in time to his great shot of... <laughs> a uh, very shoddy hotel flooring as <laughs> a bathtub is able to make that uh, a multi-story trap mm. and nearly takes out a couple of other people.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great moment. Um, yeah, there's there's a few like genuinely great images and like scenes in the arrival. And I, I think I actually think the alien invasion stuff is really well done and kind of the slow reveal and they're interesting aliens. And again, we've got like glimpses of this alien world uh, and this alien uh, society, but not so much that we're actually getting a bucket load of information about them. So it's that sort of thing is again, like really well crafted. I, I just wish like the characters that were actually involved in the alien invasion thing were just a little bit more, More compelling.
2: And there's some interesting concepts to the invasion as to what their motivations are. Yes. And it it fits in with uh, one of the struggles that uh, we're dealing with now in global warming. Because the aliens have noticed, well, you're already kind of ruining the planet. so. We'd like it a little bit hotter here, and that would, in fact, get rid of you pesky humans, and then we could just make it our planet. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm, Exactly.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: This does something which so few films that are called science fiction try to do. I'm a huge fan of the science fiction genre, especially of a part of the genre called hard science fiction, which is dedicated to... To putting in scientific concepts, but using it to just try and explain a, a human problem, and so very few sci- movies that are called that even try to do that. So, and especially at the time frame when when this arrival came out, that was almost unheard of. So I was really amazed when it when the aliens' mission was was revealed, and what does that say about like how Oh, they'll just they'll just take mm. over, and they do literalize it and say, well, we're just doing what you guys are doing. We just need to get faster because we need to get over here.
2: Especially when you compare it to the other alien invasion <laughs> movie that came out that very same year and pretty much overshadowed this one completely because this was released the same year as Independence Day, mm-hmm. which had a lot more impressive-looking aliens but a lot less ideas about them.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I actually find the the arrival concept of, hey, climate change is because of a big alien conspiracy a lot more reassuring yeah. than climate change is because we just don't care, right. which is the actual, <laughs> what's actually going on. Yeah. So the arrival is kind of like, oh, that would actually be better. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> than... yeah. Although it is tied in on companies right. buying True. areas with which don't have regulation. Mm. And it's tied into, the like, this. they find out about this information from increasing stock prices uh, as well. So the aliens have done their homework about how we can fuck things up.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> In other words. And, and yes, I want to agree with you guys that just how it doles out this information, just like not as much, obviously, as his first movie, but he doesn't have the cha- a, a budget to do Independence Day spectacle, but he saves it. So that when, in a wonderful scene where uh, Charlie Sheen is traveling down an elevator, you get finally get a big reveal of just what's happening in this uh, subterranean lair. And it introduces a sort of alien cleanup, an alien Roomba device, in a really interesting way that pays off quite well for a, the action scene later.
2: And for me, it's never quite saved, uh, mostly because... The uh, design and depiction of the aliens more so reminded me of another TV movie, hmm. which was the uh, early '80s miniseries V. Oh, I don't know if you guys remember that. The sure. aliens were kind of these uh, lizard creatures who, yes. who were wearing human masks. That's funny. And it's a low budget situation where he just didn't have the money to make it to make it believable but they didn't have that in the 50s either for a lot of those classic sci-fi movies but still some of the jerky movements that indicated uh, that they were aliens and weird contortions struck me as less suspenseful and more unintentionally funny
0: oh that's uh, that's Hmm. too bad i was i was bought in on on those because when you get a quick reveal of the alien it's almost always in an interesting uh, way for me. I like the way their legs work, for example. Mm-hmm. And I like that you don't see their natural form as one of them jumps across uh, a two-story building. As visually, does it really look as impressive as, say, your average superhero movie today? No, it does not. But at that point, I didn't, you didn't think that the aliens could do that. So I was, I was more drawn in by the fact that it was happening. And I also think that the movie does really cool use of the Day of the Dead festival. Decades before Coco, although I guess you could say that maybe it's like the Mexican version of how when films in the 70s had Chinatown, they would <laughs> always have the dragon parade on it. <laughs> so, but part of the part of this movie set in Mexico and they do a l- lot of fascinating things with the imagery of of the Day of the Dead. One particular detail that some people might think as cheesy but i really enjoyed was how this one alien who it, deposits the scorpions it has a little uh, skeleton puppet and he always makes sure the skeleton puppet is around and the scorpions in fact come from little caskets that are hanging around the skeleton puppet <laughs> which is like Now, that's a guy who's dedicated to his gig, you
2: know? Actually, I think I like the skeleton puppet more than the aliens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They give a lot of personality for it, but I love how when he sets up a a dangerous thing in a hotel room, you see it from the puppet's point of view Mm. in a a low-angle shot. It also helps with Charlie Sheen's character, for me, that he is able to improvise on a situation, that he sees how a certain bit of alien technology works, and he's able to quickly use that out to to his his advantage. The biggest detriment of the film for me is that it actually crosses in the Paranoia Uncanny Valley. It's a movie that traffics in paranoia and sinister conspiracies. But who is part of this conspiracy? there's just oh maybe one person a little too many. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you didn't see it coming, and honestly no. and that that I I appreciate. It. I'm like, okay, even though this is a twenty-year-old movie that is probably trafficking in uh, plot tropes that I've seen countless times before and since its release I'm still surprised by things and I respect that even even if it it does kind of get into the oh come on really tire territory I will respect it because at least it's pushing that and it's still like kind of flipping switches that I wasn't expecting to be switched-hmm
0: that's right this is a film that where scene by scene and moment by moment, you do get a sense that of a guy trying to think of what's interesting, what's a nice way of presenting this story, and it does give you these surprising moments, even all the way up to the, up to the very end where a lesser film would just give you the big, gigantic climax, it doesn't quite end the way that mm. uh, you think it does. I really kind of liked that final image of the hundreds of hundreds of screens, which mm kind of gave a real weird alien atmospheric all its own. I want to pass along two interesting things about that I really like about the movie, and one of which is a harbinger of what's going to happen in the next film. First off, it's kind of fascinating to me that, especially seeing as how one of the menace comes from two people who go in and clean up, and those are two complete, like, men in black-looking white dudes, mm-hmm. but their cover is that they're gardeners, <laughs> which, in context, would kind of immediately give them away maybe more than if they were actual aliens. <laughs> in, <laughs> I also want to tie in that, Brad, when you're saying about V, that the Ron Silver effects that I found in the Arrival works its way in V as well. Because if you see V today, and, and there's older episodes that are available for people to watch... I actually find that we've gone so familiar with alien creatures from different sci-fi movies that I actually find these scaly lizard heads a lot more believable and less scary than the gigantic hair and um, uh, pounds of makeup that was used <laughs> for these people in their 80s outfits. <laughs> in their in their 80s styling. That's way more scary to me. Mm-hmm. And I have a theory of my own about Arrival that Charlie Sheen's character in Arrival both in his profession and his look, was the inspiration for a character called Gordon Freeman in a game series called Half-Life. It's really well, a really well-regarded game about a scientist where everything goes crazy at his laboratory. And I swear to you, take a look at Gordon Freeman it's kind of a dead ringer for what Charlie Sheen's doing, right down to the facial hair.
1: Aim high. Well, it's possible. I mean, there wasn't a rival video game that was based on uh, based on the movie that actually does follow Charlie Sheen's character. So maybe some of the same game developers ended up, <laughs> ended up on <laughs> Half-Life. Who knows? Who All knows? right.
0: Who would have thought that science fiction and game development would both be such fans of Charlie Sheen. I find it kind of really charming in its own way. Now, from this movie we arrive to Tooie's film Pitch Black from 2000. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again because a vision softly creeping
1: Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain
0: Still remains A spaceship crash lands on a strange planet with three suns, where nighttime only comes once in every 22 years. Most notable among the eclectic group of surviving passengers is the captured criminal Rick, played by Vin Diesel, who correctly predicts that he's not the only one they have to worry
2: about. So, I will have some nice things to say about this movie, because I actually do think it might be his best directed film. But just like with The Arrival, I think so much is undercut by a terrible terrible lead and i know there is a is a cult of fandom for for vin diesel i am clearly not part of that because i thought that when die hard came out we were done with these roided up meatheads as action <laughs> heroes and we might be able to follow some you know human beings in these roles but vin diesel For those of you who listened to our Andrew Davis podcast, I had a a few uh, choice words for Mr. Chuck Norris and, and Steven Seagal. And I do think Vin Diesel is better than those guys. But what I do compare him to is Sylvester Stallone. And Sylvester Stallone not at his best. Sylvester Stallone in Cobra. And those kind of movies. And so Vin Diesel is just bringing this monotone same reaction to everything. And and it's always some kind of well, this is what's going to happen now. And because he knows, he's read the script, clearly. (laughs) So he knows he'll be all right.
0: (laughs) Hey, by virtue of showing that he could read, that puts him one up on some of the other people you just
2: mentioned. And it may not be a coincidence that uh, his best roles are where he's doing voices for characters that speak only in three words at a time, like I am Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy or even uh, Iron
0: Giant. Yeah, you don't like him as a monster tree person?
2: <laughs> I like him better as the monster <laughs> tree person.
0: Okay. But that still hasn't translated to you enjoy his performance? Because I actually think that his performance as the as the titular Iron Giant was really nice. Yeah, him being just
2: the voice, the film being so well made, and him not really having to do much... I think made that work, but when he's got to carry a film like in this series, I, th- I think it's rough going.
1: Hmm. I, you know, I, there are certain points in the 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 Riddick franchise that I will concur with you on that. However, in Pitch Black, I don't think he's oversaturated in his kind of tough guyness because he's really only. Kind of the central character. There's enough other characters that are they're going around, going along with the, what's going on, that he's not really the focus a good percentage of the time. Um, so you kind of get little bits and pieces. I, I will say there are parts of it towards the end that started to bother me because it seemed like he was. The character was actually like doing kind of pseudo witty catchphrases like after something would happen. And to me, that's not the character I wanted to see. Like to me, the interesting parts of Riddick are really when he's. Just very kind of quiet and very matter of fact in the few things that he does say. He shouldn't really be throwing off witty catchphrases. I wanted him to be a little bit more, more snake pliskenny, um, (laughs) where he's just, he uses language minimally, um, (laughs) and to not be this kind of like, Catchphrasy archetype. And there are moments in Pitch Black where he kind of borders on that. Um, and that kind of took me out of what was going on uh, a little bit, which is a shame because I really love like 90% of what's going on in Pitch Black.
0: I think it's considerably more successful than your impression, partly because in Pitch Black, when, especially when you first see it, You don't know of the Riddick character is going to be a character. In fact, he starts off the movie in a really great plot self-development as the monster. You think that after the ship crash lands, that he is going to be the threat. And so all these requirements that, Brad, you're expecting for rich characterization is not strictly necessary because he is the boogeyman. He very well is the boogeyman in the first part of the movie. And I think that's one of the real cool parts of the film, is that you think he's the threat, and then you see that there's something much, much worse.
2: Now, that's a really interesting point, uh, because I only saw Pitch Black for the first time in preparation for this podcast. So I knew going in that he was the lead, that there would be a bunch of other movies called Riddick, and that Vin Diesel was going to be a big star. Mm -hmm. And so there was never a time where I got to be under that misinterpretation, which could have helped, because those qualities that I think are pretty much death for a hero do work for a great
0: villain. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just this one unfortunate wrinkle that you get out of looking through movies in the past, especially when they've become series, is that you don't get that chance of the like the fresh expectation. If you are able to, my favorite example upon this is that in Terminator 2, for the first 20 minutes, if you watch the movie really carefully nowadays, Arnold is still meant to be the bad Terminator up until the point that he pulls out the shotgun and. Say, shoots Robert Patrick to save Edward Furlong's character, mm-hmm. but every other depiction of that is that he's meant to be the bad guy, and Robert Patrick is meant to be presented as the good guy. So, if you didn't know that, it would have been an amazing reversal. But it got ruined by trailers. <laughs>
1: that, uh, yeah, I, I remember being spoiled wh- before I'd even seen Terminator Two, like uh, when it when it came out, and like they they blew the marketing. <laughs> <that>. Exactly,
0: exactly, <laughs> and that's a. And so that's a real shame when that happens. Mm. But if you look at the first half hour of Pitch Black with that in mind, I think that your impressions of it could be significantly enhanced. I love this film, and part of the reason for that is because I think this is one of Tui's most successful ways of giving us more information or more different situations on such a great gradual level on both the plot and on the scripting. These aliens are just delivered in such wonderfully small increments. Their threat becomes uh, more and more obvious, but the way they look is only really fully revealed by the end. So it's a a great sense of mounting tension as you get more and more of a picture as to what these, these guys are like.
2: Here's an example where the low budget is actually used to the film's advantage because Tui develops an original look for this film. Mm -hmm. And he does it in in real simple ways that, that aren't... Big special effects spectacle mm-hmm. one of which is the the daylight scenes because uh, the setup of the film is that there is no nighttime and there's what three suns and so he creates these just with uh, filters these kind of different colored skies and backgrounds that give the film uh, a very unreal look to it in in the daylight scenes and then once it does bring on the night he learned some really good lessons from aliens and how to apply monsters in a way where you tease them at first and reveal them slowly
0: yes tui actually had one of the many many drafts of alien 3 his draft was most notable for introducing the idea of the penal colony that has an alien threat. Hmm. And then he did a second draft of it when the studio insisted that Ripley come, Ripley come back. So he definitely has aliens on his mind, as did many science fiction monster people at the time <laughs> with that legendary series. I think the way he draws out the threat is just superior, in fact, because you just get the most abstract detail of characters getting just disappearing. And just the briefest shadow, and then when nighttime falls, they just are these like anonymous swarms of, mm. of mysterious clouds. And there is a great shot where a wine enthusiast is finds himself surrounded by sounds. The sound design is also amazing by introducing the hooting and the cawing, often without you seeing these monsters at all. And you're and he's surrounded by these sounds and these strange vague motions and he just uses his last bit of booze to breathe a fire Gene Simmons and kiss style <laughs> and then you see the monsters for just the briefest flash and just so nicely nicely done. Ah, oh, you're so right on the how he makes things innovative on just the different visual filters when the different sun. I want to even say the different suns there give a different kind of light to the things as than when natural light comes in. There's a real fun moment Two thirds of the way through, where they're in a subterranean cavern, and you just have the light just slowly dissipating, and it transitions, uh, instead of like being a Belatar descent into complete darkness, but it holds that for a moment, then you have these creatures who are causing this iridescent blue light. Right. So, so the film's visual look gets enhanced yet again. And then, on top of all that, he also did a great job of showing both the vision that the monsters see, which is this just great it's kind of like um a cross between the static you get on the television set and those um models where you're the models of pins where you can push your hand in and get that kind of viewpoint. And then Riddick's view of him with because he has had to live in total darkness. So he has a different view when he has his goggles to guard against the light when their goggles are on or when their goggles are off. Those are two other different looks.
1: Yeah, no, no, Pitch Black is definitely has a very great visual style of its own uh, and multiple visual styles through the course of the film. And it's 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 not surprising that it was it was so well received just because there weren't a lot of films that were kind of doing that at the time uh, as to having this this very unique palette. Um, and to do it in such a a really w- well done way, where just kind of the atmosphere is slowly brooding in on you, where it's just kind of going slowly and then still having the characters slowly get picked off one by one mm-hmm. um, and to also have characters that you're not necessarily rooting for in a lot of cases, but that are identifiable and unique. Characters yes. that you're you're excited to follow, even if you know they're they're not gonna make it out of there well, most <laughs> easily. Of so not.
0: it's right when you get this type of film when they're getting picked off mm. one by one, and you just have in the back of your head wondering, well, I Wonder what would happen? Who are these collections of people are going to survive?" Mm. As opposed to. Uh, Okay, we know this person's going to survive, and the rest are basically cannon fodder. (laughs) Aliens, of course, did that very nicely with who survives there, and I do seriously think that the characterizations or the way that the characters are sketched out in Pitch Black is a level superior, because they introduce the character of the imam, played by the magnificent Keith David, Mm. and he has some followers. And so it spends some time to honor his perspective on things. It has a very weary mercenary who is the guy who had tracked Riddick, and he has a fascinating arc, and, uh, and the real protagonist of the movie is not Riddick. It's Radha Mitchell's inadvertent captain character, who, the, when, the, when the captain perishes during the initial accident which leads to the crash, she has to try to right the ship to make it land, and part of it involves her jettisoning all the passengers. Mm. And this provides this really amazing source of guilt. That's such a fascinating through line. It's something that aliens did explore a little bit by having Ripley's daughter die, and and where but where I find that Cameron's did that kind of on in on the nose way, I liked her Radha Mitchell's character's development over the course of this. And, believe it or not, I actually find that there is some development with Riddick himself. Again, it helps that from the start, he was just a threat. But all throughout the movie, he's not the good guy. You can feel by the end of the movie that he could very well leave and leave these people to their fate. But in a very subtle way, he just gets some measure of the humanity from that he had lost through spending so much of his life in this dark, penal colony environment.
2: Yeah, that's kind of why I compared him to the 80s-style anti-hero that has motivations but is also unpredictable and not somebody who you will necessarily be rooting for. But with the Aliens comparison, I think what, what Aliens had is just generally better actors. So Rodda Mitchell has a character arc, but she's not an actor at Sigourney Weaver's level. So I'm not sure I thought she could really sell it. Hmm. And so I didn't find myself too invested in any of these characters. The way this movie worked for me is kind of on a basic boo movie level and it, its genre-ness, and its environment. Yeah, there's some interesting character touches, having the mercenary be a drug addict. But considering that we are in a movie where people are going to get picked off one by one, I'm not sure that there was any point in the movie where I thought, oh, that, that person died. That bums me out. Yeah.
0: mm When I first saw the movie, I was really taken by certain characters who... It's not when they get picked off, but that other characters are planning to pick them off. There's a really, really fun and interesting reveal halfway through where one person who is a stowaway is not the person you think they are. And characters are arguing that, like, maybe this person could be effective bait.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Which I was like, whoa, what a really... And he's and the person's propositioning this bait thing to Riddick. And so Riddick's choice as to what to do... On that matter, which basically, he does... A slight spoiler is that he likes the idea, but has a different idea for the person to, to which to do it. I think that was that was really fascinating, especially in the context that you don't really know that he would necessarily go against that idea. I personally was bought in both by the emotional stuff about the, the different arcs, and I really like the presence of Riddick. I, I do. Because... He does something that most of the roided up people he were criticizing doesn't do. And that is, he has this kind of zen presence of just taking the world as it is. And he has this kind of sense of perspective that that comes through. Like the Joker in The Dark Knight, I find him successful in being able to show that he's in control he's in command even when he's like completely chained up because he's most in command of himself or rather he's trained himself to react in this way no matter what crazy situation shows up.
2: But it's actually that very thing that keeps me from being able to attach to him as a hero, which is that in horror movies, in action movies, I need there to be some vulnerability. If I'm going to invest in these guys, I need to at some point think there's something that could hurt them. And in this film, he's basically invincible. He's two steps ahead of everybody. Nothing's going to touch this guy. And so I'm less interested in him because of that.
1: Well, I never I never really saw him like even throughout the horse of all three movies as a hero per se because he's mostly just reacting to things that are happening to him. And if he happens to assist other people along for the ride, then that's fine, as long as it's not too much of an inconvenience to him, right, right. Um, but he he doesn't really do that much in terms of actual heroic things that are not, at the very core, kind of self-preservation during the course of all three movies. Right, he's established
2: um, more as an anti-hero, right. or a, maybe protagonist is the better word.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm but i think there's some interesting things in the conversation that he has with the bounty hunter and what he had with Radha Mitchell's uh, captain character part of it is pure machiavellian right he's trying to play them each one against the other to just divide cuz it gets him a better gets him a better chance however it's very subtle i do grant you but as Radha mitchell goes and points out what she thinks her mission is and is and she finds herself incredibly tested emotionally through the course of the movie, you see an increasing level of appreciation for, on the part of the Riddick character. Like, There's a moment by the end where he extends his hand and says, go ahead and join me. Whereas I think the Riddick at the start of the movie would have like, no, nah, the door's closed. I'm out of, I'm out of here. Well, he, she did barge in on, uh, on, him, on him taking off. But he could have kept the door, he could have kept the door closed when Radha Mitchell arrives late in the movie and he gives her a chance. So I very subtly it's increased. And that vulnerability, Brad, you're talking about. I felt it at the end. What's his vulnerability was he could not allow himself to feel to get a human connection to and Rada Mitchell's selfless act at the end, when she knows he's a threat. She knows he would be a danger to, on this escape ship. And if he was being dispatched by the monsters, she could have totally left and she decides not to. Which leads to a big sacrifice on her part. And that's the, part, the one part where he yells. Hmm. Where he yells, not for me. Hmm. Not for me. And that locked it in for me. That was... Uh, if, by the end of the movie, he makes a statement that no, Riddick died on the planet Mm. and that's the riddick the the riddick who didn't care the riddick who didn't find anything worth about for humans apart from what he could do to get an advantage about them that guy is gone and so yeah i was really surprised by how that arc came in from such a monolithic character who had this big established perspective
1: No, that's fair. I I honestly say, I I honestly can't say that I necessarily saw that kind of level of growth uh, with Riddick, but uh, I'm certainly glad you did. I I can certainly see it. I think I was was concentrating much more on the more monster atmosphere aspects of it than necessarily following Riddick, because you, you really don't really follow Riddick for a good portion of the movie. It's an ensemble piece that's kind of led by Rada Mitchell, and it's not until towards the end that it kind of becomes a little bit more of a Riddick showpiece. That is really what I l- like a lot about Pitch Black because again, you get these snapshots and these little bits and pieces of kind of the outside world and who Riddick is, what, who all of these people are, who, what, what is religion in this world? What are all of these characters? Where are all these characters coming from? What are these other planets? No, you're just given this little insular mini depiction of these various character types in this universe. And again, it leaves you kind of wanting, wanting more and wanting to have a better take on this larger world that you're getting this small glimpse of. Be careful what you wish for. This is certainly
0: true. (laughs) (laughs) my, My final thought on it is that I really enjoy films like this because First off, they exceed their grasp. They they where they could just wallow in genre tropes, they manage to deliver "quote unquote" the goods in terms of the horror, the suspense, the shocks. But in addition, they there's a I was surprised by the emotional component of it. That I thought that was amazing. And if you're a person who like just appreciates how to make quality filmmaking on a very limited budget and very limited elements, and you look. At pitch black, with those ideas in mind, and examine how it does the cool things that it does. I think you'll just be really rewarded by a guy who is able to spin gold out of um, uh, uh, Walmart yarn level materials in a lot of in a lot of cases, which is always cool to witness. Hmm.
2: So next, David Tui is going to leave the world of Riddick for 2002's Below, which takes place during World War II as the submarine USS Tiger Shark picks up three British survivors of a torpedoed hospital ship. The sub is pursued by German destroyers as disturbing revelations come to light about the sub's last mission and the fate of its former captain
0: what you're saying paul about the uh the mechanics of delivering the scares it's like i just really like on the hints it gives on the mechanics of the mechanics of the submarine what he does with these limited spaces is just amazing and how these particular details just what does it mean to be on a submarine in that environment and what are the particular threats is very cool how those threats are man- manifest all throughout the course of the movie
2: i found it a qualified success but but a success i think it might be Tui's best film got to give a bit of a spoiler warning though because in describing why it's so cool we have to reveal the thing that the film very meticulously reveals so that is uh, about to happen this movie was co-written by darren aronofsky and he was originally uh, set to direct it, although he instead went out to do a *Requiem for a Dream*. Uh-huh. And so, this movie has a hell of a great idea: a haunted submarine, a ghost story set deep in the depths of the ocean in wartime. So, the threat can be so the threat's already there in that you're underwater. You're running out of air. There's German U-boats looking for you. And then beyond that, the characters slowly realize about this malevolent spirit. So on a conceptual level, great going. And there's, there's parts of this movie that looks great. The opening shot of the water is filmed in this very evocative way. But one thing that it didn't do that I think it needed to do to be kind of the home run that it could have been was really be period. It didn't really sell to me that it was taking place during World War Two. Hmm. I was getting some acting beats that seemed really modern. Even the look of some of the characters seemed very modern. And so I was taken a little out of it by what I thought was a, was an inability to be period, but that's really a, a minor thing compared to what the movie does right.
0: Hmm. I I didn't mind the non-periodness. It's you, you're totally right that there's a a lack of say pompadours of the of the 40s period by many of the people on the submarine and and they're if they're sailors they're they're not, a lot of them are not going to necessarily have that same look. One of the characters is played by Zach Galifianakis and man, that sub must have been quite a while to get uh, uh, m- the monstrous beard of his,
1: <laughs> for one thing. Well, that, that's exactly all Finalicus's character, I think, would actually be probably closer to the norm. Because if you're in a sub, you're on a sub for a long time, you're going to be a lot dirtier. <laughs> like, I don't think we would have wanted to see what the <laughs> sailors look like ah. um, if they were on a sub for, like, weeks at a time. Because that's the thing. Like, it does such a good job at being so claustrophobic. Like, once once this movie starts, you are in that sub. And you are in that sub for 100 minutes. It is not taking you out of that at all. And I really... I am a sucker for any movie that is basically going to be on a single location. Mm. And this movie does such a great job at establishing that location. Like, there's a... Uh, kind of a long shot towards the beginning of the film where they've got a couple characters that are kind of running around the sub introducing uh, the the new character, like telling the rest of the sub that, there's hey, there's new arrivals onto the sub. Mm -hmm. That is really so well done because it basically just gives you the layout of the sub. It gives you the layout of, this is the space that we are going to be working with for the running time of the film. And it does such a great job of both doing that while at the same time establishing these characters that it's a great kind of preface to the rest of the movie and this is before anything that is even vaguely supernatural happens in the movie and it's just kind of establishing establishing the space before it starts establishing like the freakiness of the space. Yeah. Um and it does such a great job throughout the film of doing a very very slow deliberate escalation of the oddities that happen cuz really the supernatural aspects are so limited. You could kind of dismiss them as like are they supernatural is this just stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. And it treads that line so well that uh, it's just it's it's a genuinely like creepy, unsettling movie. And I'm kind of amazed that there's often discussion about like great underwater horror movies. People are talking about like Deep Rising and and Deep Blue Sea. These are they're fun, Mm, Yeah. but you never hear people talk about Below and it's such a great I think because it's not a monster film that's underwater, it is it is a ghost story set beneath the confines of a sub. You just don't necessarily think of it in relation to uh, some of the other water, water set horror films.
2: Yeah, Paul, you're so right about how the location is something you get to know and becomes its own character not just the inside of the sub but also when characters have to leave the sub and and you really get the sense of just how far away from safety they are but the introduction of the supernatural element really i thought was done perfectly it's via this record player that's uh playing this benny goodman uh big band tune Mm -hmm. and it it comes in when it should not be coming in at the most at the tensest moments and so you have a great building of suspense and also this this reveal because unlike with pitch black i really came in not knowing a thing about this so i had no idea this would end up being a ghost story Mm -hmm. so it was a very cool turn of events
0: yeah The way that the tension gets ratcheted on what Paul was saying is done so effectively. There's plenty of terror to go around before you even get ghosts. Right. (laughs) Um, that the Benny Goodman want to take one example because they're submerged and depth charges and you have things that go bump in the ocean. Something's bouncing on the top Mm -hmm. that could or could not explode. And just it's depicted so well as all these characters that we've been introduced is done a very shown in a very slow pan across as this thing is bouncing and different people in turn stare at the threat directly above their heads as this charge slowly hits this girder, slowly bouncing on this rope. Oh, it's just it's just white knuckle. <laughs> And just that emphasis on silence is just so good. A great triumph of sound design as mm. well. And then when that Benny Goodman comes in, this lively jazz tune might as well be like a, a cannon shot for, <laughs> for how much it shocks the conscience.
2: Right, because every, the, the everyone has to be dead quiet during that scene when it mm-hmm. comes on.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, and speaking on like how sound is used, I do admit to being a bit of a fan of like how Tom Clancy elaborates on certain mechanical details of things, and I think that this delivers on that as well, because there's so much details upon like how sonar is used, and, hmm. and how to go and submerge, how to remove the air, uh, to go and get under the water, and just the increasing level of hydrogen, and the danger that comes up with is great, how all the procedures for launching torpedoes and, and uh, using getting to Pyroscope Def, and I, I even love the log books that show you, like, okay, this is a ship. Here's a whole... this is That was a period of detail that I, that I love. Maybe, maybe it's done in today, where they have a big book that shows all the different kinds of ships so you can see what kind of a mm. class and what kind of a threat the, the ship is. All those are delivered wonderfully, and the non-ghosty threats are also doled out really nicely. There's a downright hellraisery y moment when part of the way that the ships on the surface try to capture the sub is through these gigantic, slow-moving evil grappling hooks <laughs> that are just caught through whole sections of the sub,
2: which I've never seen in any other submarine movie.
0: Nor I, and they're okay. just uh, they're just great. Like the and provide and a moment that sort of reflects on some parts of. A plot development in Pitch Black where the captain has to make a decision, and they stall, leading to his uh, yo-yo enthusiast assistant mm. um, say, "Go move, move, move!" to just just get out of the way of one of these giant hooks from totally knocking this uh, submarine down for the count. Mm.
1: Yeah, Bruce Greenwood is—he uh, plays the captain of sorts of the ship.
0: Which, I just want to point out, it's once again a captain who's not really a captain, right. Kintarada Mitchell's character.
1: Right. Yeah, where he's he's kind of stepping in after uh, things happen to the previous captain, uh, and uh, Bruce Greenwood, I I I I feel Bruce Greenwood is kind of really underrated uh, because he's. Often kind of invisible, but he's so good at what he does. Like if you saw Gerald's game, he's he's really great in that, even though it's a relatively minor, kind of milk toasty part. Um, but he's so and he's so good in this where he's just he's clearly having some kind of breakdown mm-hmm. and really trying to not have a breakdown, and that it just. Uh, his performance is really, I don't think it, necess- it carries the film in any ways, but it's such a good part of what makes the film solid because you, you're you compelled by this guy. You're not really rooting for him because he's a mess, but you're kind of fascinated by him um, and his reactions to everything that's going on around him. Mm-hmm. Um
2: yeah, I think the success of this film is absolutely dependent on that performance because it's a slow reveal. We spend most of the first part of the film, first of all, thinking he is the captain. And even as we slowly find things out, he seems to be the one that could potentially hold things together. And to reveal that he, that not only will he not be able to hold things together, but he is the weak link of. The entire crew yeah. is something that that's a balancing act for an actor, and, and that that he does really well.
0: Yeah, it makes me think about how also, like Pitch Black, that has a the bounty hunter is a person who ostensibly is a tough guy who has uh, all the answers or who presents himself as having all the answers, but he is one. Of, turns out to be one of the characters who has the least amount of nerve. And that's a fascinating thing for, for Bruce Greenwood to show in this movie, which he does amazingly. He's, he doesn't have a big iconic presence, but w- especially when it comes to like being able to express like multiple levels of vulnerability in like the subtlest of ways, he is, could be quite magnificent. Especially in two particular films of uh, Canadian filmmaker Adam McGowan. <laughs> the sweet hereafter, and especially as the main character in Exotica. A guy who is getting a very twisted take on the uh, same things that Jimmy Stewart was doing in Vertigo. So I, I completely agree with you guys that he, he, ironically he "quote unquote" anchors the film <laughs> by his by his really effective yet subtle performance. The supporting cast exists to me mostly in the Aliens two zone where they're sketched lightly and they are distinct from each other, yeah. which, which is really cool. I like how two of the people who work in the engine room are two different varieties of the Mr. Murday character from, uh, from Holy Motors, or at least the character, Dennis Levant, who, who plays them. There's a slight detriment in that a person who is meant to kind of be more heroic... Sort of comes across to me like a Carrie Elway's impersonator.
1: I was thinking Michael York. He's mm. he's kind of Michael Yorky.
0: Uh, he does <laughs> does have some Yorkisms, but York has a lot more personality compared to Carrie Elways. Mm. Is like Carrie Elways is pretty blandly anonymous, yeah. and so now I'm seeing an imitator of that. <laughs> I real personally, I'm in terms of just for character actors I'm familiar with. I did enjoy what Galpinakis does mm. as a guy who's very much the um, Hudson from <laughs> mm. the guy who's freaking out at the beginning, and then you find out it's for very good reasons. And there's a very charming moment at the end where he's been, opens a box of Cracker Jacks and he finds a little sub, and he just angrily flicks it into the <laughs> ocean. It's like, I've had enough of that. Mm.
2: And then there's uh, our lead, which is is really the nurse played by Olivia Williams, mm. who we, we see most of the movie through her eyes. And it's interesting because her presence seems to set up a potentially a different kind of movie. She's so beautiful that she's a bit of a distraction, not just for the crew, which is she's the only uh, female member now of, mm-hmm. but also I, I think for, for me, I found that it was almost inevitable that this was going to lead to some kind of romance and perhaps triangles formed hmm. and that a bigger deal was going to be made of her presence on the ship. But it kind of avoids all of that, which which was a, a nice subversion of expectations. Uh, sub- or submergence. Submergence.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's so true. She's a lot more of a catalyst. She's actually, in a in a weird way, she's almost the riddick of the of this in the sense that her appearance causes everyone to react dramatically in reaction to the fact mm-hmm. that she's on the ship, as opposed to what was happening before. And the movie delivers on the suspense on in multiple different ways, both in the practical sense when the boat when they're being pursued by German boats when the supernatural comes in. Those are delivered just great. Oh yeah, uh, It is one of the most subtly effective versions since the original Haunting, I think. There is a reflection that moves when it shouldn't, which was uh, a jaw-dropper for me when, when it happened. That was just really nicely done. And even in a submarine movie, they go to the similar apocalyptic disaster level that it happened in his first movie when the hydrogen gets a little too high
1: and that's that's actually one of the I think one of the things that makes it effective is it's structurally very different from a standard horror movie in that it's not like watching these characters get picked off one by one. Right. Uh for for the most part. It's creepy things happen and then terrible things happen (laughs) and it's like there's very little in between there there's the escalation is just on a very different path than a lot of films of its nature
2: and it's also interested in the moral ramifications Mm. of these creepy things because like the best ghost stories the ghost is there for a reason so when we see what the Bruce Greenwood character has done and what has happened before the events of the film, it makes the ghost story element even more powerful.
0: Mm. One thing that this film calls to mind, which is a film that I really highly recommend people check out and is sort of a bit of a spiritual successor to The Shining, is a film uh, called Session Nine. Mm. It also works on this great example of how people who have to do their job are already in an amazingly tense, stressful situation, and things are on edge before the horror comes in. Also, locks in the horror to the emotions and interests of the characters, and also features in Peter Milan a great performance of a guy who you're as worried about how his mental state of desperation is almost as bad as all the supernatural things that are befalling him. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in Below where it's one of the most scariest things is a guy showing up in a perfectly clean outfit and who's perfectly shaved. This made me just go, whoa, whoa, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, this is horribly wrong.
1: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And like Session 9, it was a... Ghost story horror movie in a unique location that came out in the early 2000s was barely released and promptly ignored by audiences when it first came out.
0: Yeah, and that's that's unfortunate. I don't know why that would necessarily be for Session 9, because it's very much catering on a shining environment. But for submarines, part of the novelty was how do you sell that, how do you promote that, and and especially how do you dole out the... Scares. Which is because right,
2: there's no way to tell people what kind of movie this is without ruining the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But there were other submarine movies like the U five seven one, which gets compared to on the box on the box cover. There's like K seven K nineteen, The Widowmaker. Um there was kind of this like an influx of Crim- Crimson Tide. Crimson yeah. Tide, yeah. Um so it at the same time there weren't really a lot of Ghost stories at that time. Um, like the I I noticed that the, the box cover compared it, U571 meets poltergeist. <laughs> and it just seemed odd that it's like it's comparing it to a movie that was 20 years old at that time. Yeah. I'm like, were there no like haunting kind of movies? But looking back, there weren't really a lot of big ones at that time. Like the the kind of haunted house movie has been Pretty a pretty recent redevelopment yeah. in terms of popular culture. And I guess, like, at the era, people just weren't feeling ghosts. Yeah, I
2: mean, there were some great ones, but they were a little more under the radar, mm-hmm. which, like, uh, The Others mm-hmm. and also Guillermo del Toro's Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True, yeah.
0: Yeah, but mm-hmm. Devil's Backbone, not get a major... Right, right. You know, no, it's, right it's a not... A, not, it's not lab right,
2: yeah. right. Not it, it was something that... Uh, Fans of his would have been clued into, but not the general public,
0: and maybe not even fans because it was more historical based, and he was kind of known for doing those uni- his very twisted uh, body fluid take on the Universal <laughs> or uh, Universal monsters. Right, um, Devil's Backbone is also really, really good and very recommended for people to check out, but especially check out Below. I mm. I just unqualified would recommend it for people it is the definition of a underground gem that's been that's vastly underappreciated even knowing some of the details there's some that we've kept hidden that are amazing when you if you guys get a chance to watch this movie and experience it which i would recommend that you guys do mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, I I concur completely. It seems to be one of those genre films that people just don't really talk about, and they really should because it's it's a really great atmospheric, neat little ghost story. Tell-
0: Once we get ourselves back to the surface, we return to the world or worlds of Riddick in The Chronicles of Riddick from 2004. In the sequel to Pitch Black, Vin Diesel's anti-hero is pitted against the world-conquering zealots known as the Necromongers. While also confronting bounty hunters and searching for a survivor from the first film, Riddick's adventures take him to the prison planet of Crematoria, where the sun, rather than darkness, poses the biggest danger.
1: You know, uh, David Tui is really good in his his uh, early films at kind of creating glimpses of these worlds that uh, that you're really fascinated by and you really want to hear more about. In Chronicles of Riddick, he actually gets the chance to show you the world that you got a glimpse of in Pitch Black. The results are not great.
2: Mm. (laughs) It's a really strange choice because there's a lot of CGI effects, a lot of design to create a larger universe for the Riddick character to be in to explore his background and all these planets. Yet, at the end of the day, the only thing they could figure out to happen in all these worlds is just standard action movie shooting and
0: fighting. The purpose of this movie is It's such an odds with itself, with those action scenes of... Riddick, running away from things, jumping things, doing these, dispatching dozens of people in the middle of a world building exercise. I, mean, I kind of liken it to having an episode of Lord of the Rings where 50% of the time you're concentrating on some dwarf <laughs> fighting in Moria like it's a, uh, like it's the Tolkien's version of the Penitentiary series. <laughs> you're like, why, why am I seeing this? I thought, you're this. <laughs> Yeah, this comes across to me like David Tuhi's, David Lynch's Dune.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's very much got this kind of like completely overwrought um, sci-fi fantasy film of Blockbuster potential of the of the two thousands, where especially like where you just had like lots of ridiculous worlds and elaborate set pieces, and not really a lot going on uh, when it came to the movie itself. Um, it's it's pretty. It's kind of pretty
2: yeah it, it opens up with these strange masks that reminded me nothing so much as zardoz
0: <laughs> uh, oh, wow! It, it,
1: it, it, i wish it had that level amb- of ambition
2: right right it, it, it abandons it fairly quick this is a, a period when cgi was still this kind of toy that some directors knew how to use and other directors didn't and it becomes in this case very much a crutch you could visualize anything through cgi but if there's no incentive to make it integral to the story to play in these worlds what's the point of creating them
0: Oh, I have a significantly different perspective than you on that, Brad, because I liked the world building that happened in those details, in the design of those. I'm going to admit my positive bias on here is I actually did like some of the world building in, in David Lynch's Dune as well. <laughs> so I confess to that.
2: <laughs> well, let's look at the Judy Dench character who the feud of imagined, Which is hard we'd... to do
0: because she's uh, out right. of uh, uh, phases in and out.
2: Yes, in the feud of Yeah, that... both of the movie and physically. Yeah. yeah. If you'd imagined that we'd be seeing a, a Judy Dench Vin Diesel vehicle, uh, <laughs> uh, we would have been quite surprised. She is an elemental, she's this air creature who can. Uh, fade in and out of existence and float and do all these things. And aside from being used for a little bit of exposition and I guess just to have Judy Dench there, there's no reason for her to be there at
0: all. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I guess the closest thing I would have to a reason is that it was an attempt... To have Harvey Weinstein help get this movie an Oscar
1: <laughs> yeah the the, uh, the description that was given towards Judy Dench's character is seriously the extent of the development that the Judy Dench character gets in the film like I don't understand what elementals are where they're coming from why she's there what anything is about this. This feels like the first part of a trilogy, like that we were maybe meant to explain a whole bunch of stuff later, and then we just never got around to it. that That's kind of the benefit of the doubt that I'm giving with it, other than maybe you just didn't think of it and just thought it looked cool.
2: And yeah. if you're going to have an air elemental, give us at least a glimpse of the fire, earth, and water elementals.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's very, very uh, slightly sketched out. Barely at all. I think to your point, Paul, it's about... He has these designs and this interesting imagery and sort of the desiccated skeleton of what could be an interesting world, but much like how if you're going to like a haunted house and then you see these eerie shadows or strange lights and you're captivated and your imagination helps fill in the blanks but if you see the, a haunted house during the day <laughs> you just go oh god this is so chintzy mm. <laughs> it's, the film is chintzy in ways where it doesn't tie all these world building elements to either a story or some underlying interesting facet for example It shows that the necromongers are these people who live in this world between life and death and apart from certain interesting elements like some psychic people who are called pseudo dead and they're sort of shrouded but that concept what does that mean what does that mean for the characters and what and how different people react to that objective is never really explored instead we're given this really really cliff notes Macbeth treatment by uh, Carl Urban and Sandy Newton (laughs) which is at total odds to how the necromongers behave usually they're monomaniacal fanatics so what's this plot for ambition? why would Sandy Newton care if her husband attains the throne of this position? the movie never gives us any reason why we should care.
2: Well, so little else is going on that uh, the Carl Urban stuff was actually my favorite parts of the film oh, just, yeah. just just because I like Carl Urban. Yeah. Okay. He pretty much single-handedly is the only thing saving these new Star Trek movies. Okay. And but he doesn't have much to work with, but he he's more entertaining than anybody else. Now Thandy Newton on the other hand, and you're so right with the the Macbeth thing, she is she's just channeling Lady Macbeth via Uma Thurman's version of Poison Ivy and Batman and Robin. <laughs> oh, wow. It, 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 she is doing some serious overacting. She's like, I'm going to make this count. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, no, there's several parts where her overacting so bad that I swear you can swear that her eyes are rolling around the back of her head like a, a tranquilized horse. She
2: made her own performance in, in Beloved seem subtle.
1: But that's, oh. you know, honestly, I kind of wish if the entire movie was on that frequency, then it would be it, it would be fascinating. It would be like just campy and overwrought and over. It would have been it would have been like a Luc Besson film, and <laughs> you know. And I I wish that it had that level of energy. Whereas so much so much of it is more on the Vin Diesel level of energy, where it's just like, well, there's all this pretty stuff, but we're just kind of going through the paces and doing our action thing and not really developing anything whole. So it's just more dull than the visuals seem to reflect. Mm.
0: And whereas Pitch Black actually gave a bit of an arc towards Riddick's character, here it becomes really apparent that uh, Tuohy slaps on the elbow grease and starts cranking up, we're gonna make this guy a hero. That catchphrase that you yeah. were uh, uh, concerned about in Pitch Black, it is dialed up to 10 or 11 here as scene after scene has these hero shots of Vin Diesel, has him saying something cool, has him doing something cool, and much like very bad comedies give you a pause for the laugh track that may or may not arrive, this movie has these moments where he's frozen in this awesome pose and it holds. on. It's like, so you're meant in the theater or on TV to go, or while watching TV to go, yeah, that's my Riddick.
2: Is this the one where he kills somebody with a teacup or something? Exactly
0: yeah. how just how badass. If and he's, was... he's got to say.
2: I'm gonna kill you with this teacup.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. Whereas the badassery on display in the earlier movie was a natural part of finding out more about the character. Here, it's just always, what's the badass thing? Is he gonna do? Is he gonna scale this? Is he going to jump over that? Is he going to like be standing abreast like Atlas with the fireworks of an attacking uh, of an attacking fleet? In fact, it it starts off on the wrong foot by having a pointless battle between the denizens of a planet, between the soldiers of a planet who are going to be instantly conquered like 10 minutes later but 15 of them run into a room so they can be brutally slaughtered by mm. him, basically but in an awesome uh candle extinguishing way mm. but i'm at i have the contrary thing is that i'm I guess I part of it is because I did like the world building in terms of the design mm. that that I wanted to find more. I wanted to find more about whatever past for philosophy, or and I actually did like the idea of the purifier. His arc is could, could be come across like a little clunky, but his perspe- sense of having a removed perspective of what was going on, I found kind of interesting, and it was definitely a fun contrast over Urban and Thandi uh, Newton. It's like. Mm. Her performance is bad, but she has actually has had the worst female performance of the last twenty years as Condoleezza Rice in uh, Oliver Stone's film W. Oh boy! Be- because <laughs> while everybody else has different levels of of good to great acting qualities, like Richard Dreyfuss Dick Cheney is very good in the movie, mm. but then every time it cuts to Condoleezza Rice, it's Thandy Newton playing Condoleezza Rice as if she's Mister Bean. She's constantly like, like shaking her head and and, and dodging left and right. And I'm like, what is the matter with you? Are you just on a kind of sugar rush? What's, go- what's going on? She. Some people can do full cage. When she goes cage, you just you just. You just, you just I just totally, I just totally lose it. Oh, I lose it for her, and it isn't help that she has, that the movie never gives her a proper motivation for her. why is it so important for you to get this position. But then when you're thinking on that, then you get to this whole prison planet thing and the whole you can get a whole movie on this prison planet the Mm. two parts don't match
2: although there is one sequence that I I think is well done and, and suspenseful which is where they reverse the threat of the first movie where the dark was the threat and here, the the light is the threat because apparently the sun is so powerful that if you're exposed to it, it'll it'll just incinerate you. Mm. So there's a a kind of a neat action scene where Riddick is 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 escaping uh, through this mountain range and has to hide in these alcoves to avoid the direct uh, rays of the sun. And just on a pure action scene execution level. I, th- I think that was the highlight.
0: Yeah, it's visual spectacle that works yeah. like Gangbusters. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. you see this horizon of of stuff catching fire as the sun as the sun hits it, it may not make real sense to get a uh, pri- uh, to either make a prison planet there or to make your one ship <laughs> such a far distance. Yeah, yes, making
2: sense is not the priority of this. No, film. They, no. They,
0: they didn't really they didn't really think that up. And also, one other thing that they do is it even adds to more of this goulash of elements by having a ragtag crew of smart-ass bounty hunters mm. which pretty much effectively fails because they meet a ragtag crew of people running the jail and they're equally ragtag and equally uninteresting, they all look like they failed the auditions to be the ragtag crew from Alien 4, honestly. <laughs>
1: I was actually just thinking that. I'm like, yeah, that, that guy was actually like very Michael Wincott. Mm-hmm. Uh, except not Michael Wincott. Yeah. no, It was like, you just need to dial up the sleaze a little bit more, yeah. and I'll, I'll care.
0: Yeah, and whereas like Thandie Newton is channeling Lady Macbeth, the main bounty hunter guy... He's so channeling Ron Perlman hmm. in, mm-hmm. in Alien 4 and, mm-hmm. and countless other uh, genre pieces. It's such an imitation that it's, uh, it, it was considerably off-putting and slowly yanked the interest down even on a lower I, level. I may
2: have to apologize to Charlie Sheen's facial hair after seeing what this guy's got.
0: <laughs> <on>. <laughs> That's true. It's like a teenager trying to look like Wolverine, yeah. <laughs> It's just the attempted sideburns. <laughs> like, there's a lot of facial hair fail going on, uh, going on there, and including Riddick's uh, Rastafarian look at uh, at the beginning. Oh yes, R- yeah. Vin Diesel with hair. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's Lots scary. It. <laughs> that's the scariest part of this movie.
0: <laughs> right, right. So yeah, so these there is some attempt of characterization as Riddick deals with. A survivor who uh, he tried to avoid from danger, and instead went to pursue him over in uh, after the events of Pitch Black. That goes four different places of nowhere, and leads to a real unsatisfyingly bizarre reversal at the end. Because again, you don't know how much this indoctrination process works, or what it really even does. It seems to be actually kind of singularly unaffective, as a couple people just are able to abandon their philosophy by uh, by the end. And it's even muddled in terms of the plot developments there, which I guess is (laughs) pro-treachery in a weird sort of way. (laughs) Um, And ends on a... With a different character who isn't an action hero guy would have been potentially interesting.
1: I think even with an action character, it could have been potentially interesting because it's, you know, he's forced into this situation that is completely unlike him. So it's like seeing him react to that may have made for some interesting ideas. Yeah. They don't but yes. you know they're conceptually uh, is is something there so it actually does seem to have a climax in that there is a conclusion to the film and there are credits
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> right I think the key point you made there is that to see a person react that would have been interesting and that's just not what happens <laughs>
2: So, going from one exotic locale to another, 2009's A Perfect Getaway features young newlyweds played by Mila Jovovich and Steve Zahn. They're hiking the remote beaches of Hawaii when it's soon revealed that honeymooners are being murdered. As they encounter other couples who fit the descriptions of the killers, there's no way to know who to trust when everyone is a suspect.
0: After the deep, deep, deep dive into uh, attempted sci-fi fantasy lore, <laughs> I found it really refreshing to see Tuhi make a contemporary film, a contemporary suspense thriller. And I find that the aspects that I most enjoy about Tuhi was very much evident on this movie. I'm, I was charmed and um, entertained to a great deal by what happens in this film
2: well this is kind of two films and your spoiler warning comes early because this film is just about entirely twist i think that might be its problem is that until we get to it i think it kind of meanders a bit Hmm. yes hawaii is beautiful yes there's some great scenery didn't particularly care about the characters and and wasn't really involved or or felt much suspense until the twist is revealed and then you could kind of go back and look at it again and have a different view of it and and i didn't so i'm i'm a little disadvantaged at having seen the film only once when to get the full effect of the twist you need to give it a second watch
0: I really like the dynamics between Zahn and, and Jovovich, uh, even in the very beginning. Steve Zahn has a certain presence, uh, engaging sense of haplessness, let's put it that way, and it's clear in the beginning of the week that Jovovich is the more adventurous type. And Zahn's character is drawn along by, oh, let's try this, let's go try that, and he always has these suggestions, and he's always going out and reacting to the different adventures she's, she's suggesting. And the movie, even before you know what the movie is really about, there is some interesting contrast between the idea of potential danger in such a lush paradise. But then it's added immeasurably by Timothy Oliphant as a former soldier who is vacationing. And he's a very effectively mysterious presence, and it even takes the things to a nice mega level because. Uh, Zahn claims to be a screenwriter, and he's, but as he's relating events about the movie shoot he's talking about, uh, all find to saying, well, wait a minute, what's uh, really taking too long? Are, are you uh, really going to be that successful in the story? And they talk about how you build in suspense on stories in a really interesting way.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I I really kind of enjoyed the the meta aspects of it, where he's talking about he's talking about uh, a, a red herring uh, and in- introducing a character that is there that may not necessarily be what they're presented as, and. It's the type of thing where if done poorly could be really off-putting in that if it's too winking to the camera uh, or too self-aware and perfect getaway, I think treads that line pretty well, where you're never, you never feel like the kind of meta aspects are, you're being knocked over your head with them. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's a very, it's certainly a nice change of pace from Chronicles of Riddick um, Mm -hmm. because it's a minimal, it's a very, a minimal cast. It's. Not a lot of locations. it's uh, it's very much more down to earth. And it, going going back to what you're saying, it, it regards to kind of identifying with the characters, I think it, to a certain extent that that is true because it is so dependent on the twist before you actually kind of get a read on the backgrounds of these characters because it's not really until then that you're able to, to identify with them. So a lot of it is kind of reliant on the kind of image that they're presenting. Um, and that's really going to be dependent on so much of your own, like personal identification with these characters and the images that they're, they're showing to you. Um, which I mean, I can certainly say, like, I like didn't necessarily identify with these kind of like wealthy couple on their honeymoon because they're clearly presenting themselves as being well-off and kind of adventurous. And not necessarily, but I'm a little bit more interested in kind of the, the, the more, the hedonist couple that they they meet and befriend. They seem like more fun. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's actually interesting how they managed to make Chris Hemsworth to a uh, compelling sense of mystery about him.
1: True, yeah. No, I, I, I think it's It is very much twist-dependent, but I don't think knowing the twist may actually kind of uh, enhance the repeated viewing of it because you would be looking for kind of those clues as to how to determine how that is all set up. Right, because
2: it works interestingly with kind of these performers' general personas. Steve Zahn is going with the persona he's established in most, most of his films is the enthusiastic, slightly neurotic, uh, geeky type. Jovovich is doing some interesting things just because she has dialogue. <laughs> and mo- mo- most of her roles tend to be pretty silent and and reliant upon her appearance, and, you know... Right, seems- right,
0: or using the, world, the universe's most perfect language, like in the fifth <laughs> element. <laughs> right, <Esperanto>. right. <laughs> And it's such an interesting contrast with Zahn's presence, with Oliphant's presence. So Oliphant is clearly possessing these masculine, and both in his character's backstory, but in his very presence. He's all these masculine traits that, that Zahn's character does not present himself as, which is a real interesting that as the course of the movie comes around, you can't quite fully trust him or his story, or you you have these you have these doubts. It kind of reminds me a little bit of how this film California, where uh, Duchovny sees a um, brutish uh, guy who may or may not be a psycho played by Brad Pitt in full full Brad Pitt charisma mode, <laughs> and it's so much of that film is about how he has those qualities that the the main character finds himself lacking. And then you just get this reveal. So, before we say what the reveal is, I really enjoy this film. I would very much recommend it, because, especially for those who like suspense thrillers and who like the plot that goes in unexpected directions, because this plot is one of the most unexpected directions you will ever see. My jaw clattered on the ground when I found out what this was happening with the characters and where you saw the threat really was.
2: Yes, so we can't wait any longer. All right. The twist is that our erstwhile protagonists, who we've been following throughout the film, are themselves the killers. It's a pretty cool twist. And the movie kind of gets a a, a burst of energy from it because then... Zahn gets to play completely against type when he gets in, into his psycho killer mode. And again, Jovovich has slightly less broadly but also we're looking at her differently. Mm-hmm. The Timothy Oliphant character actually appears to be have been killed at some point. He, yeah. he is not. And the Goonie other couple uh, <laughs> who we uh, originally were like, oh, what's with these people? They're, right. they, they, they are taken out of the picture altogether. So here's the thing on the twist. I mean... I was impressed, but not quite as blown away as you were, because as I was trying to kind of work through this, there really are only three options. If there are three couples in the movie, and we know that the killers are a couple, you kind of want to eliminate Chris Hemsworth's character right away, because that's just too freaking obvious. Mm. And then you're left with, well, how weird is the Oliphant and, and his wife... And then you kind of, at least I was kind of playing with the idea that the protagonists may have been, it. it wasn't completely out of the blue to me, but I did somewhat dismiss it because with one viewing, I thought I recalled dialogue in which they were expressing fear of the killers when they were alone, Mm -hmm. which would make no sense if they were the killers, but... I gather a second viewing would, would show that that was not quite as it seemed.
0: Yeah, when I heard your objections about that I specifically watched the movie again and to see if the movie did those cheats. And they actually don't. Like that particular scene you're talking about, there is other people around. So mm-hmm. they are saying it for other people's benefit. Okay. Now, Tui does a great job of misdirection. And if you like films such as like The Sixth Sense where you, where you look back and see how Really, he had this in front the whole time. Tui does that in this film too. He does not cheat. Those elements are there. I was suspecting it was going to be a one or a couple A or couple B, couple A or couple B, and I was my loyalties, and I think the movie was really effective for me, bouncing between. Oh, was it them? Or was it them? Or was it was it them? Or was it them? But never was I thinking it was going to be the, the people themselves. <laughs> that that completely floored me
1: i think the the biggest enemy for knowing the twist would probably be the reputation of the film itself because it's kind of known as a movie that has a twist and i think at this point being thought of as a movie that has a twist you're going to get people that are going to like guess beyond the binary oh it's one of these two couples if it was just known as hey this is a thriller yeah, this is this is a thriller about a couple on vacation, and they get harassed by another couple. Mm-hmm. And if that is all the information you have going in, the twist works beautifully. Yes, but if you if you go in like knowing oh it's a movie with a twist, then you're constantly going to be thinking of that the whole way through.
0: Yeah, it's very very tough on that, and that's why I we I thought it was important to point yeah. out for spoilers for people listening in on that because. It's such a great moment when you have the rug pulled out on. It's one of the all-time greats. Like um, there's films like Six Sense, Crying Game, and I literally would put What Happens Here is in the top twenty, if not the top ten. Well, if you're talking
2: about the twist itself, I certainly think it's a great one, and I'd compare it to the uh, twist in the in the John Cusack film Identity. Mm. But Uh, I can't put it in the highest level of twist movies that films like Psycho and Fight Club occupy because I think that a standard might be, does the film work without the twist? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is yes, then then you have the makings of a great movie where the twist only makes it greater. Mm -hmm. Now, for me... It was all twist, so if the twist hadn't occurred, the movie would have lost most of its value. So that's why I don't put it in that top tier. That's
0: that's interesting. I think that you're looking at the idea that the movie has to have some sort of value aside from the twist, and I think, similar to The Sixth Sense, I think the movie gets value because of the twist. Mm -hmm. In The Sixth Sense you feel for Haley Joel Osment's character more when you realize that even the person assigned to help him has problems of his own, let's put it that way. (laughs) In a similar way, it enhances the story, I think, on multiple levels. For one thing, like I said, it's an exploration of like, and and many tropes of a thrillers have like a a kind of a sheepish or quote-unquote ordinary guy who has a more charismatic guy become the threat because it's kind of part of the threat is the threat to your masculinity and so on so the twist inverts that it also goes and inverts the idea of those memories because you're seeing these this footage that's brought that was off a camcorder and you're like oh these are the memories of these people and now you have to completely reevaluate that those are people who have maybe met a horrible fate, <laughs> or were right around where a horrible fate has happened. So you have to re you have to turn that around, and then it also does the meta level. The fact that it's a screenwriter, he's making stuff up, except that he's making stuff up not for the screenplay. He's making stuff up for the people he's with, and it's super fascinating how, to me, how Steve Zahn is like a is a geekier version. Of the kind of bizarre career paths followed by Alec Baldwin in this great noir called Miami Blues that came out in the 80s. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a, a, a complete psychopath, but he wants to have a family <laughs> so, and he wants to have a good job, so he plays being a cop and he plays having a family with a character played by J- Jennifer Jason Leigh. And in the same, I found a similar vibe with, with Zahn. Zahn makes a really cool point. He says, If you just grab the best stuff of other people's lives, you can attain a kind of immortality. And I really like that concept. Yeah,
2: share some themes with talented Mr. Ripley in that way. Mm.
0: No, nice. That's right. That's right. And I think all of these elements are something that where the twist helps it. It helps you think of those things and helps you appreciate those things. So that's a case which helps put the twist a couple levels above. Just a mere mechanical spot of like, oh, they're all the same guy and it's the snow globe from St. Elsewhere or what have you.
1: <laughs> no, that's a, good, that's a very good take and I'd actually be curious to, to re-watch the film with that in mind. Uh, I love the Miami Blues connection because honestly Miami Blues is a great movie and more mm. people should see it.
0: Um, <laughs> Jeff, Fred Ward is the oh, best yeah. ornery detective ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that it not just—it's not just cool for the movie itself, but it also ties into something that Tucci has been kind of doing throughout. It's really fascinating to me that a guy who's been making genre pictures or B pictures or psychotronic pictures still manages to have concerns that appear throughout each movie. In this case, it's a because what kind of a person are you? Mm. <laughs> That's something that's happened out from his from his first film. It's, a, it's an actual emotional concern and a plot concern of stuff like Pitch Black. The idea of identifying yourself versus your appearance even makes itself in Ron Silver's uh, sort of twin-like appearances. And even the ending of The Chronicles of Riddick, where it handled a little better, is the mm-hmm. idea of, like, here's a guy who is in a position which is very much not where he thought he would be the dislocation between how people present themselves versus their position versus where versus the kind of people that they think they are is something that works in a tropical paradise thing in 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 this film and i want to conclude by saying the the screenwriting is full of super fun details including a great moment at the end there's a helicopter shot and they're looking at where Steve Zahn has a gun pointed at him by Timothy Oliphant, who has, has the drop on him. Oliphant drops the gun, but Mila Jovovich is sitting in the helicopter with a sniper who is, who is meant to shoot. And she says something fascinating. She says, this person who's ruined my life, the person who's done all these horrible things, you have to shoot at the person who, get, who reaches for the gun. What's super cool is at that point you don't actually know which one of those people is going to pick up the gun. Meaning she's kind of a this is a Kaiser so's a badass moment mm-hmm. if you really think about it. Jovovich is gonna go with the survivor. She's going to reassign her life to whoever wins that contest who doesn't show the impulse to go grab the gun. I thought that was super super cool. Mm-hmm.
2: And will Tui be able to continue to be super cool in the galaxy far, far away that he has already (laughs) established for us?
0: Yes. He returns to that world in a film just called Riddick in 2013. the third installment of the franchise, and it begins with Vin Diesel stranded on a deserted but incredibly deadly planet where he must fight for survival. His only chance of rescue is to summon bounty hunters after his head, but soon all must face the planet's most fearsome inhabitants. Well, This, this film is
2: interesting in one way. It, it, <laughs> it, okay. In that it doesn't have a normal narrative structure. It kind of makes itself into three short story films. So you have the first third is Riddick alone against the elements and the planet and the creatures on it and making friends with this... Dog, leopard, zebra type creature <laughs> that he finds and befriends, and there's no dialogue, and 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 it's just him. And 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 to its credit, he actually, for the first time in the series, shows that he can be hurt, that he can be wounded. Soon, though, that gives way to what seems to be the go-to of of the three movies bounty hunters. So in order to get rescued, he calls himself some bounty hunters who he knows won't be too much of a problem for him and his new dog. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, and so we have the second third is where he's, like you mentioned in Pitch Black, kind of playing the threat yeah. against these newly arrived bounty hunters. And then huh. the last third, we recreate a variation of Pitch Black's monster movie so you have not quite the same creatures as in the first movie but not all that different uh a set of creatures either that allow the film to recreate their favorite moments from the first movie
0: <laughs> oh wow <laughs> you're not the uh, charitable uh towards <laughs> their uh rehashing the <laughs> implications of what all okay can, the, can, can the, you tell <laughs> uh, uh, yeah yeah uh, But I do like what you said about the three-part story. That Mm. is a really interesting way of framing things. And if you look at the second, the middle part, there's some straight-up wonderful horror tropes, like like the stuff about who's watching the person through the window Mm. or what's that shadow. But then the shadow is the guy who was the only person you were seeing in the first third. So that's a really interesting thing to take and, and make take him and be the identifier in the beginning and make him a threat, just an existential one, like a monstrous threat in the middle. But like you said, though,
2: that there were scenes in Pitch Black where he played that same
0: role. Yes, but he started off that way and it was Mm -hmm. a gradual transition, whereas this one is, he's three different roles in in this. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that the triple structure that you mentioned just calls to mind the structure of Predator, John McTiernan's Predator, which I... Straight up, I straight up think, is the greatest action movie plot of all time. And part of the reason, a big part, is because of its structure. The start of Predator is a group of mercenaries hired to go and liberate uh, an, an outpost. And it's people. And the whole thing works as an action movie about just like Delta Force or whatever, liberating that place. But then, a third of the way through, you realize that there is a threat that's not that. And it's a mysterious, monstrous threat that dispatches all these, what now we know is a capable group of commandos. But it dispatches them one by one by one. The the whole Agatha Christie model rears its invisible head, right? (laughs) But then, the third third of it, just arnold fighting the threat so what you get in predator is nothing less than the distillation of conflict in action movies to its absolute purest form it starts off with politics and then shows that no that's not what it is and then it shows well we have this howard hawks like squad of people we'll go team up to fuck the threat and it shows that's not adequate either Ultimately, it's Mono a Monstro. It becomes the action movie idea, conflict in its most purest, one-on-one level. And just announced when Arnold screams and he throws a torch into the firebrand. I love it because it takes it, like just like a perfect inverted pyramid, it distills it. It takes that impulse for action movies and gets it to the perfect fine point.
1: So is, is Riddick then Predator in reverse? Because it's kind of like the, the first act is just one man against, uh, against this force or yeah. nature itself. The second act is this one man against this kind of grouping. Yeah. And you're mostly seeing us through the eyes of the grouping. Mm-hmm. And then the third act is the, grouping all together fighting mass forces yes
0: yes i think it works on a similar level because the three things are distinct and i think it's enhanced that you look at riddick in three different ways it's sort of a uh, if predator is a distillation i think riddick is a, a reintegration <laughs> he starts he starts off just being against elements then against people and then in the end everyone bands together so it's a way of showing about so- uh, of a transition into a society
1: Wow, that is that is a deep interpretation of Riddick.
0: Yeah, but I think that the structure really helps that. No, I I, I, I and I like how each one and I like how Tula does a great job of how things are presented. I love the first third of this movie. I love it. It is so I find it so effective about how this guy who has been shown to be uber capable through the other two movies, how like you said, Brad, how he's vulnerable, how he doesn't even have his trusty blades to help mm-hmm. him out and just how an environment matches him threat for threat and how he goes and deals with that really nicely done it's a minimalist action survival masterpiece i think
1: you're kind of judging over the the best part of Riddick in that remember all the stuff that we set up at the end of Chronicles of Riddick yeah. in order to <laughs> to put Riddick in power and yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. yeah never mind never right. mind we're just <laughs> we're, we're just doing another movie now Yeah. we're just going to like spend 30 seconds on figuring out how to get him to a planet and just go mm-hmm. back from there mm-hmm. so i'm like i i appreciate that and at the same time, I'm like, if I was a fan of Chronicles of Riddick, I would be like, I, I would be really irritated. But from a storytelling standpoint, I understand you just want to wipe the slate should, clean. Yeah, <laughs>
2: because I guess there's also like a larger Riddick universe that other people have have taken on with uh animated films, right. video games and David is not necessarily involved. But I think Vin Diesel's doing the voice most of the time.
0: He did actually write um an animated Oh okay. Uh, was, uh, Dark Fury, Dark Fury yeah. which was, is animated by Peter Chung? Uh, Peter Chung who is most famous for doing Aeon Flux, I believe. Mm. And he did one one of the episodes of The Animatrix, which is also another way of doing expanding a world through animation. Mm. And Riddick is actually the subject of um, a game called Escape from Butcher Bay, which is actually a really, really great game. Hmm. He actually does the same kind of function that he does in Pitch Black and that everyone has all these different motivations, and he has to negotiate being his badass, uh, slaughtering self amongst <laughs> all these different interests, and how good or evil he is is kind of up to you. Which is, ah, a, you which is a cool way of like looking at his like moral ambiguity that he's done through, <laughs> through these films. And I like that anti-Chronicles level... In the similar way that I really like James Mangold's Wolverine as a sort of antidote to the attempted world building of the previous X-Men mm-hmm. movies. And then you, when you just concentrate on how these characters who you know, quote unquote, know how they should behave and how they're put in this such a desolate environment, it's really, really interesting.
2: Yeah, the me. public was hurt. And they said, uh, we're not really interested in, in, in your world building. Let's just have Riddick shooting more stuff.
0: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Uh, now, the the second part with the Bounty Hunters actually features two uh, genre favorites. Uh, you have uh, Katie Sackhoff, who uh, was Starbuck in the Battlestar Galactica reboot uh, right. TV series. And Dave Batista who is now more well-known as being one of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. And in Batista's case, he's actually my favorite part of the movie Mm. because kind of like his Guardians character, he's this tough warrior type, but he's just a little bit off. He just seems always a bit confused and has strange... Christopher Walken-esque line delivery. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, this is uh, <laughs> a little more interesting than the norm. Uh,
0: Even his facial hair is fascinating. He's yes. got this kind of uh, uh, double, uh, go- double goatee going on. The
2: facial hair theme returns. <laughs> uh, Katie Sackhoff does not fare as well for all her. the great things she did in, in Battlestar Galactica. She is very much kind of reduced to a standard... Warrior woman in danger role where she's basically mocked uh, throughout and doesn't doesn't come off
1: too well. And, and, and I, I, she I she gets she to a... shower, so <laughs> yes. she gets to shower and occasionally point out that she's a lesbian. Yes. Like that—that's pretty much the extent of her character.
0: <laughs> Boy, talk about like. Taking horror tropes to the second third of this movie, right? <laughs> right down to right down to the lady taking a shower. Although to be fair, that's what Ripley gets a disrobing scene at the end of Alien, so it's a fine fine tradition.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. but Ripley kind of earns it at the end of Alien, <laughs> like you know, she's like, "That's been a long day." Right. So. <laughs> that,
2: that's 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 right. And also, we are identifying with Ripley, right. as opposed to being void. gawking. Yeah, yeah
0: hmm Here, the characterizations suffer a little bit. Uh, Bautista is really interesting in how he has not the fullest dedication in his idiot leader of his group of uh, mercenaries. <laughs> and I really like the leader of the other group, who turns out to be a person from Riddick's past. Mm-hmm. It's a fun interaction that reminds me of some of the stuff that was happening in The Hateful Eight, about how his matter-of-factness... Just is a great contrast to how the other, the leader of the other bounty hunter group, is is maniacal and sarcastic. But the other characters, though, just start to descend to be. Like right down to being like the guy in the Steven Seagal movie goes, who is this guy? I tell you, he's the he's the baddest of the bad. <laughs> like he kicks lightning and crafts thunder, etc., etc. Yeah, um, like so, a couple of these people just descend to literally just being that and food for the various other creatures that are on this planet.
2: Yeah, and, and Riddick has it's his most Riddicky moment in this one one of the mercenaries is constantly threatening to cut his head off and and put it in a basket and he has this big speech where he goes no here's what's going to happen your head's going to cut off and your head's going to be in the basket yeah, yeah, yeah. and
1: guess what happens and uh, yeah <laughs> and to be fair that I, I honestly i laughed so hilariously when that happened because <laughs> because i'm like this that's just absurd that yeah. is just like i th- this is the yeah. the most ridiculous thing that could possibly happen and it happened and yeah. like i'm i'm on board because why the hell not why the hell mm-hmm. wouldn't i be mm
0: that does seem to dwell, uh, focus a little too much about how he's able to balance a sword at the end of his foot and kick it in exactly the right place. If you were looking at Chronicles of Riddick and pitchback like, I want more gore. I want to just, quote-unquote, deliver the goods. That is the goods. I've never really seen a person's tongue from that angle before. Let's put it <laughs> that way. <laughs> Plus, the character does do a good job of getting on everybody's nerves, including... The audience mm-hmm. so so his dispassion is most welcome <laughs> <laughs> I think also it's it's interesting because you may look at the limited amount of sets and think that this is uh, a limited movie but it doesn't look like one it doesn't feel like one and maybe it's because CG had advanced because like there's creatures that he's fighting that clearly aren't supposed to be there but I found really convincing and his Animal companion was a re- uh, was really nicely rendered. Oh, I mm-hmm. thought
2: that was a goofy looking thing. That it is it, goofy,
0: but that's part of
2: but goofy looking both in the sense that it's this amalgam of animals, uh-huh. but also in the sense that I never actually bought that it was there.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. I bought in. I totally bought in, and I love the vistas that he's able to do. He's. It seems that like Tuhi's scope has even expanded from chronicles of Verdict, whereas before he was trying to like like coruscant to the fandom and it's like i gotta put this detail i gotta put all these details everywhere here he scales back and ironically makes things more expansive. But you get these vast deserts and this epically foreboding thundercloud and when you see what the threat that this thundercloud forebodes it's i think it's really really great it's like this Undulating horizon of moving mass mm-hmm. that is approaching closer, which I thought was mm. really, really nicely rendered. E- each
2: film has a different environmental system that poses the threat. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, True. that's that, that's right. Huh, funny, like they got some of the, his environmentalism on uh, the a concern on the arrival mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> man- manages to show through. I guess, that, but that's that's a great point.
1: And in Perfect he, Getaway, it rains sometimes. <laughs> so it all comes together it is, a,
0: it is after you make if you make a planet with the incredibly too apt name of crematoria i guess you want to do something quite the opposite mm. don't you <laughs> so where would you guys place it in these this movie in the riddick saga <laughs> Well, it's, it's to an extent we need a saga at all.
1: It is better. It is. It is an improvement over Chronicles of Riddick. I, I don't think it's quite up to Pitch Black, but I think it, it has interesting ideas. It's got compelling moments, and I enjoy it. I do want to ask: Did you guys watch the director's cut or the theatrical cut of all of David? Toy seems to have multiple cuts of all of his movies. That's right and in most cases I noticed that that didn't really make a difference mm-hmm. but in Riddick I think it did okay and in a because I watched the director's cut and I'd be curious if you watched which it, version it you seems watched.
2: like the standard version on the DVD releases of all three films is the director's okay. cut okay
0: well, or at I, least, at I least had, on the
2: versions that I watched, on, those are the ones that it kind of defaulted to.
0: On the version that I saw for Riddick, there was an option for theatrical distribution and director's cut mm-hmm. one. And I picked the director's cut. Ironically, it was because, oh, well, if it's a director's cut, then he can include some of the gore and, and so on. And so I was not disappointed <laughs> by, that part, <laughs> by that part of Riddick, to say the least. But I did not see your I did not see your
1: original cut. Did you have a chance to see a comparison? I I, look, I looked up the comparisons online to see what the difference is after watching the director's cut. okay And the big difference in Riddick is that that final scene in the movie where he goes home or goes back to his home planet and there's a little like coda um, as to what had happened to how he got there. Uh-huh. That's not in the theatrical cut. Hmm. So it's just like him leaving this planet the end. Mm. So it's it's kind of interesting because it like takes out that part that ties it into this larger Riddick yeah, universe. That's right.
0: That would seem to be the thing that a studio would want more right. is to include that tag. But then, uh, Tui wants to include that. Mm. Huh? That's really fascinating. That ending isn't strictly necessary no. in in terms of how Tui cut to it. Either ending would have worked okay for me. I guess that the theatrical cut would have worked a little better.
2: L- look, I- honestly, I-, I thought Pitch Black worked despite Vin Diesel. So by the third film, I'm pretty much done. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay.
1: You're running low on, low on diesel. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: man. I really liked looking at these series of films. And I look at that in the context of what George Miller did so successfully with his road warrior series because if you think about the three the four movies of road warrior they're all actually quite distinct they're all different kinds of the world that are depicted in different ways yet i think three quarters of those have been are really really successful this has Obviously, from our discussion, different levels of success for each one. But I like how each one is fundamentally takes a character like Riddick and puts them in a different kind of environment. And some parts he does not work very well at all. But in this part, which I kind of think is more of a "quote unquote" western, the same way that the Wolverine movie is kind of more of a "quote unquote" western, I really like that uh, that aspect of it. And maybe part of it is that I have John Ford on the brain from our <laughs> previous podcast. But it really harkens to what the kind of themes of what does it take to go and integrate into society, and maybe we're getting the action movie genre version of that, or at least an exploration of that, which which I think is just kind of cool. And now I think his next movie is supposedly going to be a return to Riddick and Furia, which is his home planet, and to the extent that they built up a mythology, that's. The planet where he and people like him come from and one of the kind of cool moments in chronicles of riddick for me was a sort of out of context moment where he finally realizes where he came from and he causes some sort of mystical explosion i kind of i kind of dug that maybe it'll get him to a more mystical level on that but i personally am looking forward to see what two he does with that i mean what do you guys think do you guys want to see more of him in either his riddick involved films or his non-riddick involved films
2: for the next riddick film i think they'll be missing an incredible opportunity if they don't just have the king of his home planet be played by the rock i think that that is clearly the the, the way to go on that um i don't know if i think uh Tui's best film was Below mm-hmm. and so maybe what I'd like to see him do is kind of pursue a more uh, suspense oriented
1: films. Okay the tendency towards franchise films is like the fourth one is in space. So I don't know what they can do with that with Riddick. <laughs> right. they're, it's like Riddick but it's
0: on space. Oh, so. it's
1: crazy. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know if we necessarily need more Riddick adventures. I don't think there's anything that Riddick the character necessarily brings to the table that can't just be another character. But I, I'm certainly interested in seeing more more genre work from Tui like in whatever form that takes.
0: And I personally would like him to try his hand at either one because i am a a fan of what david Tui has to offer he's a guy who has shown to me a creative willingness towards trying to do interesting and fun things with the genre movies he's uh, put together so far and i think he's really really good at making films consistently entertaining and with new developments through it as you, as you watch them. The way he can dole out these, de- these interesting details at just the right moment to maintain suspense in both a script level and at a visual level is something that he's shown, I think, has a great track record over the films he's done so far. And whether it is the Riddick-verse or not, I'm, I'm definitely very curious to see what he does next.
2: Well, Paul, we really appreciate
0: you joining us for this. This was a blast.
1: No, thank you very much. I had, a, I had a great time.
0: Very, very cool to hear all your different insights on these films and on related films of this type of film and a type of filmmaking that too often gets unheralded. And on, on, on that note, I think it would be fun for us to just list like what kind of a film that you think more people should see but haven't had a chance to, like the below level. What's... Mm-hmm. What's like a below that you would recommend for people?
1: Well, the thing uh, like uh, David Tui has a lot of similarities to David Kep, who's another screenwriter turned director, um, but probably more known for his screenplays. He wrote uh, like Mission Impossible and uh, Jurassic Park. But he's also a relatively prolific director. He directed Stir of Echoes, uh, The Trigger Effect, Premium Rush, and they're all good, solid genre films. Stir of Echoes is kind of a a ghost story. Premium Rush is like a bike messenger thriller. Trigger Effect is basically kind of a paranoid thriller uh, about what happens when the power goes out. He's kind of one of those directors that you don't necessarily hear a lot about, but is just worth following for that very reason. Similarly, like Brad Anderson, who did Session Nine, is, oh, is similar yeah. as well. Who's also like dabbled in a lot of genre work, mm-hmm. um, and is seems to be pretty good at any genre that he takes a crack at.
0: Mm-hmm. Sweet. My suggestions would be a director named Mark Pellington, and he's done two really fascinating films that. Have a, kind of a stir of echoes to some of the stuff uh, Tui was doing, a supernatural story about a real a real life strange occurrence called the Mothman Prophecy, where he is able to make sinister malevolence out of the most ordinary things, and also echoes the guided tours idea of like fate and inevitability in terms of what supernatural or non-real messages you're you're getting and he did a great take on conspiracy theories in arlington road and which also features the way the conspiracies manifest themselves in that were, were amazing
2: so for a film that really just goes well beyond the constrictions of its genre i gotta go with craig brewer's black snake moan
0: if ah. anybody
2: saw the kind of the advertisements for this or its marketing, it looks like this sleazy exploitation movie with Samuel Jackson holding a uh, Christina Ricci in a chain, mm-hmm. and she's scantily clad, and it, it just looks like it's going to be this sleazy thing. But then when you actually watch it, it's got such a high level of acting from not only those two, but also Justin Timberlake shows his chops and thematically it takes those images and puts them in a far more interesting place by making the film, the film version of a blues song and using the film as a way to make the themes you hear in most of the standard blues songs we know and love, visual and exciting. And, and it's, it's a great film that uh, you you wouldn't imagine so if you just kind of saw the commercial for it.
0: Huh, and I never really thought about that movie in that way. That's fascinating. I know when I'm going to check it out next, I'm going to pop in a couple blues number, old school um, blues numbers mm-hmm. before that. Awesome. So, Paul, where can people... See what you have online.
1: Well, uh, you can catch my writing at uh, Daily Grindhouse at dailygrindhouse.com, or if you go to watchthisthing.com, you'll get uh, my constantly updated uh, list of what's new and interesting on uh, various streaming platforms. So you can catch my uh, social media stuff uh, from there.
0: All right, cool. We hope you guys listening in have enjoyed our exploration onto the work of, of David Tui and found something cool in the details of his various films and the themes that i find have run throughout if you want to comment on what your favorite david toey films are or other filmmakers and films that manage to transcend their genre feel free to give the directors club an email at directors club at gmail.com the directors club can be found in numerous places online from itunes at directors club spotify at directors club we are on uh, facebook at directors club under twitter for dc podcast and our episodes can be found online at our website at directorsclubpodcast.com thanks for listening guys By the way, one one thing I failed to mention about Pitch Black that I just have to note for you, it had the craziest wipe I ever fucking saw. Mm -hmm. They're looking for um, one of the um, imam's acolytes Mm -hmm. and who has had a swarm of these creatures and then the acolyte's half chewed open face just falls right into the middle of the frame and then you have a wipe from this eye socket, right to the uh, shot of one of the suns. Uh-oh. and I'm like, "Why did you do? That? Why did you do that,
2: man?" I, I forgot to bring up my nitpick about the movie. Oh which yeah, is that night happens once every uh, 22, twenty-two years. years. And it not only just happens to happen as soon as these guys crash on the planet, mm-hmm. but it also happened the
0: last time the last crew crashed on the planet. <laughs> oh, they, they could have... um No, they didn't crash. They were miners. They were oh, miners. Okay. Oh, so they were there for a they while. They were there oh, for, for a while. while. They, they, there, they, they had, had, they had, had housing and stuff. Uh, so. That helps a little. Yeah. There yeah. Isn't, uh, it isn't the sense that, like, this is just the Bermuda Triangle of planets and people <laughs> just can't help uh, uh, crashing in on that. <laughs>